Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all 7 continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Hi, my name is Gul Nawaz Hussain. I'm a barrister and Sheffield's only QC. And when I'm not in court, I'm in the ring. I just hope I can live up to the high standards that those silks who have come before me have set and, and hopefully pave the way for, for other people from working class backgrounds, BME backgrounds, to, to, to dare to dream, which is what I did. Naz, how are you, brother? Hello, Chris. It's good to be able to do this in, in real life. <laughs> oh, it's where this journey of life has taken me, not just historically, but where it's continuing to take me, mate. It's, I, I mean, I, 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 I just say that I live in paradise. It, I, I'm just such, I don't, I mean, I, I guess you kind of create your luck, right? I mean, that's, why we get out every morning and we work hard, isn't it? And we follow our dreams and we try to educate ourselves. But so whether it's through that or maybe just like, I'm really fortunate to meet people like yourself, solid, wonderful, um, forward thinking, kind humanists that have achieved so much and that, you know, have come from adversity themselves or fa facing hardships along the way. And the podcast is really um, touching, sort of touching base with a lot of people, if if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. You're very kind of you to say that, Chris. And life is full of luck, but I'm, I'm reminded of, Oh, I'm going to quote lots of uh, real deep philosophers, and this one's Obi-Wan Kenobi in the, in the book of uh, A Last Hope. He's, when he's asked about luck, he says, luck is the skillful manipulation of extraneous variables. And I think that's what it is. You end up making your own look by the decisions you take and, and, and the path you walk down. But, I mean, you're doing fantastic work, um, and I'm sure we'll get into how we sort of connect it. But um, I think you send such a positive vibe out. You're doing such great work. You have such fantastic people. Um, on your podcast um, it's like a, a light in the dark you just attract like-minded individuals I think it's uh it's quite selfish of me though Naz because just I just find by giving and being yourself and and following your dreams the universe just gives it all back to you tenfold yeah. and and so it's quite so I you know I, I I just try to be myself. That's all I ever do. And I think in our hearts, we're as humans, we are kind. We're a kind species. Um, I'm, maybe I'm a bit delusional. I, I'm not sure. I think you're right. But I think if you follow your heart and and you're not afraid to speak out when you see bullying or oppression or this, this kind of thing... Um, I, I just think it leads you to ha to happiness, and so it's almost like selfish that that the, you know the podcast is doing so well, and and I'm you know 
people are following and watching and sharing and this kind of thing. But um, so I need to break there and just say hello, everybody who's either watching or listening. Massive welcome to another edition of the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Um, Naz Hussein is an amazing individual. Uh, just a brief soundbite. We're talking kickboxer who's now a barrister QC. And Naz is going to come in and feel free to, to correct me after I've said this, but my understanding is to become Queen's counsel, you have to have uh, been on the bar, Naz, is that the expression? But, but, yeah, the bar is a sort of collective term for barristers. So yeah. you're usually looking at people who've got about 15 years plus experience and then there's a selection process, not as hard as the selection process that Lou Rudd and uh, Steve Burns went through. But for us, it's a, it's a similar kind of thing. And um, you sort of whittle down and then from those who have applied, uh, those who meet the standard, receive um, uh, the, the, the two letters after their name. And it's, uh, I mean, you obviously, I can't wait for you to tell us more about it, but you go to, is it Westminster and you get presented your silk, your silks, um, because you wear a, a slightly different robe to... So, I mean, um, as you know from having been in the military, lots of things in Britain have a lot of pomp and ceremony attached to them, but they also have a lot of tradition and history. And I think it's important that we we, we embrace that because it is what we are as a nation. It, everything has a has a story behind it. So, so dealing with the sort of ceremony first, when I, when I filed out, um, you know, it was, it was quite a shock. Uh, I mean, I was in the car doing the school run with my missus and kids, and I'd given my phone to my wife and said, look, the email's coming in today to tell me whether I've got this or not. So she sort of read it and started screaming. Um, do you, Naz, do you, do you have to apply for it or does someone yeah. nominate you? So what happens is when if you reach the sort of stage in your career where you think you're ready for it, so in a similar way to um, service personnel who want to go for selection, they sort of make the decision and they put themselves forward. Um, and it's, um, it's quite a, a long form uh, where you've got a set uh, of competencies and you've got to demonstrate how you meet those competencies through a collection of 12 of your most important cases in the last three years. Um, and then you've got to have 12 referees who are judges, then uh, similarly uh, people who are barristers or QCs and then also solicitors. And you sort of have to, it's limited characters, so you've got to be very concise, very precise in what you say and you put this through and then you get through to the interview stage. Um, and I can sort of come back to this in terms of how I sort of dealt with it, because it's sort of the first interview I'd had in well over 10 years. Um, and you're being interviewed. I was interviewed by a former British ambassador and a retired high court judge. So it, it can be quite fearsome when you go in there. But the sort of mental approach you adopt to, to deal with a situation like this, I think, dictates how it, how it goes down. So well, I saw yeah, I just wanted to um, put you right on something there. I can assure you, Lou Rudd, SAS, MBE, and Stephen Burns, Special Boat Service, MC, would be the first to say, 
what you've achieved is is you know it's life is not a competition it's about following our destiny isn't it and 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 some go this way some go that way and some go that way and then turn around and say that's that's yeah. not for me and and or for or for whatever reason and um well, it's you know, that desire to want to want to achieve excellence i think that's that's certainly what we all have in common and and everyone who's watching i'm sure wants to achieve excellence in some sphere of their life whether it's personal with their family and how they raise their kids which i personally think is the most important thing how you are as a as, as a family person how you're raising your family how you interact with your friends i think is the most important thing and it's the thing that people will remember you for ultimately yeah and also in any sphere of your life whether it's sporting or professional you you want to achieve excellence and it's about how we how we realize that and the strategies we employ to be able to uh, achieve that and um, i mean i know i've certainly found that you know you you need help anyone who thinks they can achieve it by themselves i'm sure there may be one or two people and you know uh, hats off to them if they've done it like that but i think the vast majority of people need the advice support guidance um, of others and it's being able to be confident enough to take that ask for that advice take it but then also make your own decisions uh, about how you're going to do things so you know so i went through that sort of process um the um the interview was 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 quite could have been quite difficult for me i think but the sort of mental approach i adopted to it was and I, it's something i've done in almost every important thing i've done in my life is prepare for the worst so you'll listen to like lou rudd and operators like him when they're going out on a mission they will think of the worst possible thing that could happen and then have a strategy in place to deal with it so they're never left in a position where they're sort of fumbling around trying to reach for something and then in a far less life threatening way i did something similar so i i thought about well what's the worst things that's going to happen i'll be asked a question that i don't immediately know the answer to um so i had a strategy in place and it's one i commend to recommend to everyone which was whenever i was asked a question i'd i'd give it 2 seconds to let that question just sort of settle in to give myself a little bit of thinking time and if i knew the answer go ahead and give it but if i didn't um i think as brits we don't like silence and we'll often try to fill silence with word mm-hmm. um but it's about again it's an opportunity to show your confidence so if i i was asked a question during the interview and i didn't immediately have the in- answer to mind so i didn't say anything i just sat back and i just was quiet probably for about 40 seconds which in a sort of half an hour interview is quite a long time but it's giving yourself that opportunity to it's think it's a lot of pressure mate you know the problem yeah. is it's not that it's not necessarily is it the answer in the question or taking the 40 seconds it's a fact that you've got this you know and it's all in our head i mean pressure is yeah. what we want to make it right but yeah, that- well yeah you you've got it uh, you know we all have that internal dialogue that's going on and it's sort of there going you're fucking this up Oh, you, you don't know the answer to this and you've got to have the confidence and the skill to really bring that voice to heal and i mean that'll happen in everyone's life in something whether it's you going for a job whether it's um asking for a raise whether it's approaching the person that you want to go out on a date with or something you know you'll have that internal dialogue going on that can very often be negative and i and i know you did your sort of uh, recent podcast on uh, not feeding the dog So it's it's not feeding those negative aspects of your own 
subconscious that sort of could hamper you. So for me, I just took the 40 seconds. I didn't say anything. And I sat and I thought, uh, and I think I did it twice actually during the interview. And the first time I gave the answer and the second time I got up to about a minute and I, and I couldn't think of the answer. I just said, um, I can't think of the answer immediately. Can we come back to that in a little while, please? And what you're really showing there is, listen, I'm cool. I'm comfortable. I'm confident. I will deal with this. And often that's what people are looking for. They want to see, you know, uh, that you can handle a stressful situation, that if you don't know something, you're not going to try and waffle your way through it. You're going to say, listen, I don't know that, but I'm going to come back to it. And it's about handling a situation. Because in my job, it's about instilling confidence in a client. So all my clients now face the most gravest of consequences. They're looking at prison for life. So lit literally their life could be on the line. They could well be dying in prison. So every decision they make is important. Every decision they make, they, they agonize over. And they've got to understand that I appreciate that. They've got to also understand that their life, when they're placing it in my hands, I'm a steady, steady operator. I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to be um, running around like a headless chicken. I will deal with things. So all these sort of skills, and as you mentioned, the sort of tie boxing that I did, for me, really came from there. Um, but yeah, so I, I dealt with this interview and, and it just went like a dream. And the, and the worst scenario for me was the question, but also not getting appointed. But I sort of dealt with that in my mind. I thought, well, if I don't get appointed, what am I going to do? I have two options. Go away and cry like a, like a baby in a corner. Or you pick yourself up, you dust yourself down and you go for it again. And I'd sort of resolved in my mind, that's what I was going to be doing. And perhaps the pessimist in me, when I walked out of the interview and in the sort of months between then and finding out, I'd already started working on my next application just because I thought, you know, maybe I didn't get it. So let's do something productive. So for me, the approach I've always adopted is be proactive, work towards what you want to do, prepare for the worst scenario, have an action plan in place. And if the worst happens, already have an idea in your mind, how am I going to deal with this situation? And I sort of deal, I have that approach every single day when I'm in court as well, when I'm, when I'm dealing with, with issues there. Now, so I've got to ask you, and, and just to clarify for our friends, friends listening or watching, I mean, it's not just a person going for a job or, or going for the role of QC. You've come from a background which traditionally in England has been discriminated against. Um, you, you've only got to look at, the British public sphere um, to see there's not a massive amount of Asian faces. I mean, there's, there's obviously more now. Um, so, I mean, there, there's more, there was more to it for you, right? Yeah. I mean, um, I suppose in terms of factors that sort of statistically counted against me, there was the fact I came from a, an Asian background, you know, my dad, came over here when he was very young, sort of 12 years old, mm. uh, and effectively started working straight away. Worked in the textile mills in Lancashire and then came over to Sheffield, the steel city, and, and was working in the steel mills there. And, and I think one of the bigger factors that still plays a role in British society is class. Yes. And, you know, we were proudly working class. Um, so that coupled with your sort of ethnicity isn't what where you know, your, your average barrister is drawn from. So, yeah, there were, there were those factors. Um, were you now, sorry, uh, 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 was it, um, 
did you did you have that kind of feeling when you were going for this role that oh my god if I don't get it all the naysayers are going to come out and say well we told you you know what were you thinking yeah I mean um I think I think that's a big thing we have in society now social media has sort of really opened up the sluice gates on this and allowed haters to come forward and sort of 10 15 years ago it was only the couple that you knew that were probably going to dog you for not achieving something that you wanted to now it's complete strangers i know you experience it who you've never met before who are chiming in off the sidelines saying you know you've not done this and you haha you couldn't achieve that that's that's going to happen but again you've you've got to decide how you're going to deal with it um and there's, there's a saying i read can you tell us the expression that you you told you told me the other day that the yeah one... i was just coming to it it's one i read and it was a sort of a chechen saying and it talks about how the, the dogs bark but the caravan keeps moving and when i read this it just really hit the mark for me because you you are the caravan you are on your road heading towards a destination you want to achieve something in. And along that destination, you're going to get these dogs coming out from houses en route, coming and barking and chelping, nipping at the heels of your horse, wanting you to be distracted, wanting you to slow down, wanting you to stop. And, and that's their dream. They want you to stop. And if, if not, actually focus on them. And, and the dogs won. As soon as you reduce your speed, as soon as you change your course, heaven forbid, you stop and actually engage with the dog you've lost because they're not interested in what you've really got to say there their concern for you about not being able to achieve something isn't coming from a good place it's not someone's and it can happen family members often will say look i'm i'm worried about you for example going to war yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I want you to come back in one piece i don't want to lose you and that's coming from a genuine um place and it's in meant in a in nothing but a good way but this isn't like that this this is people you know, who aren't brave enough to step into the ring themselves, uh, who haven't perhaps achieved what they wanted to do, seeing you wanting to strive out and achieve something and trying to dissuade you. So you've, you've got to resist the dogs barking at the side and you've got to keep your caravan going because as soon as you give them attention, you engage with them, they've won. That's what they want. You're never going to be able to say anything to convince them. So th the approach I adopted uh, was to... At best, just completely ignore it or just turn around and say, yeah, you're probably right, and then just move on. Yeah. Can't allow them to to alter the course that you want to, to follow. And also, again, for people listening, or, or maybe you are one of these people, it's important to understand, Naz and I, we want the best for you. You know, it, it's not a two-way thing, Naz, is it? If you throw dirt at me and my and what so you're essentially throwing dirt at me and my family when all I've really tried to do is fight my way back from chronic mental illness to, to find happiness in my life but like if you throw dirt at me and you don't even know me or whatever like I don't hate you I still love you I, I just want you to to find you know peace in your heart because it must be horrible to be sat there on a keyboard thinking that your role in life or, or the way to happiness is being horrible 
to complete strangers because i mean it's what i said at the beginning of this podcast human beings are essentially good in my experience across you know over the half the countries on this or about half the countries on this map is um people are wonderful and uh yeah yeah i mean um you you've got to maintain a positive outlook you can't allow uh, the hate of others to influence you um because all it does is it just it just it doesn't help you achieve anything and the one thing that you can take from that is is motivation so and that's something i certainly did um and i say you know the the best form of revenge is success so you achieve what people say you can't and even if you don't achieve what you wanted to to set out to do you'll get something a little bit lower perhaps but it's still a hell of a lot better than what you would have achieved sitting on the couch or you know bumming around and and, and not trying for something but the fact is you've gone out and you you've worked you've put your effort in and i mean it's that's all that anyone can ever ask of you i mean i um i've got three kids my my son's the eldest he's 14 and he's at a stage now where he's uh, and i'm sure we'll get to discuss it. he's a royal marine cadet and um you know he trains at in Thai boxing at the same gym that I did at his age and there's that sort of instinct to the dad you want your kids to surpass what you achieved uh which I think is 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 natural but in the end um the message I always give him is look son as long as you've given it 100% that's all that matters whether it's school work whether it's training sparring whether it's life if you've given it 100% nobody can ask any more of you and you will know whether you've done that or not we we're, we're all always honest with ourselves inside even if we're not perhaps honest uh, about ourselves externally deep down we we know what we have and haven't done and that's all you can really ask if you've given it 100% and it's um, worth, again, it's worth noting now isn't it that you know you might you you it's not just that you're going to fail at loads of things in this life it's that so what if you do absolutely you know, Yeah. Oh so what? Because it's part of your learning experience and you might go that way and you get steered back this way and then you're steered this way you never thought you'd end up in this place doing this thing and then suddenly you're back over and ultimately it's all learning and it's all a move towards what I call enlightenment to, towards getting balance in your life and peace in failures failures are the most important thing um again from from a military perspective i know um um our special forces and it's a fantastic you know we're such a small country we we have the best troops in the world and that's because of the way they train and and i know from having read about these things and spoken to people like yourself that after a, a successful mission they come back and they deconstruct it they look for what could have been uh done better what didn't go exactly to plan and that's the thing you're learning rather than sitting back and um uh, sitting on your laurels you're looking at what could have gone better what could have been improved on what didn't go right at all and learning from that and and i'm a firm believer that all the bad things that happen in your life um perhaps not immediately um will ultimately teach you a lesson and it is a lesson that will benefit you uh in the future i can say that hand on heart about the experiences that i've certainly had but yeah if you're not failing you're not trying it's that simple 
you're just not trying. I mean, you watch a little kid trying to learn to walk. It doesn't just jump up and start walking straight away. It gets up, it falls down, gets up, falls down. And, you know, life is full. Our, our culture, our society is full of these stories of people facing adversity and trying. And we, we love these stories. It's why we like to hear people like, you know, Lou and uh, Steve and Denny and yourself talk about, you know, uh, long drag or endurance or, you know, a 30-mile march here because we want to hear the experience and how you felt and how hard it was that you sort of dug in. And and we, as a as a species, I think we value that. We, we see the importance of that. And it's about realising that you don't have to be doing 30 miles in your life to actually experience the same thing. It might be just, I know when I've sort of not been anywhere near as fit as I'd like to be because I've always gone up and down. Sometimes the hardest thing is putting the trainers on opening the door and getting out. And that can be the hardest thing to do. But once you, you've done it, it's like, right, I've, I've broken the back of this, I've, I've overcome it. And then everything else is easier. I mean, last week we're, again, I'm sure we'll get to talk about it, where my son and I are preparing to do the fan dance. And so he'd been, he's got a better social life than me now. He'd been in London with his mum. The, the fan dance for our friends listening, it, it's... It epitomizes it it, it. it kind of epitomizes the special air services training. It's a very tough course in Wales that goes up and down uh, high mountains, and the the SAS famously have to prove themselves there on their selection course. Um, want to be SAS troopers, I should say, have to prove themselves there. Um, carrying heavy weights, carrying a weapon, doing all their own navigation, this kind of thing. And what Naz is saying is his son is going to do it for a charity event. So, Naz, go on. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose we can talk about that after. Um, the, the point is, is he came back at about three in the morning with his mum and sisters. And we were getting up at seven to uh, to go head out into the Peak District. And... And it was hard for me to get up because I'd stayed up to wait for them to come back. And then, so I was getting, I, I was up getting ready and he sort of came to, to the bathroom door and knocked on the door and he's like, Dad, you know, I'm feeling a bit tired. I just went, so am I, son, let's get going. And that's all he needed. He was just sort of, look, we all do it. We look for that permission to, to, to bow out of something sometimes from someone else. And as we got out and he was like smiling and I said, it feels better, doesn't it? Now we're out. He goes, yeah, absolutely. So it's sometimes it's that small little obstacle. It's not the big thing. Ali is someone whom I idolize, Muhammad Ali. And he, he, there was so much wisdom that came from the guy. And he, he, he said one of his famous quotes was, it, it's not the, the boulder that gets you, it's the pebble in the shoe. It's that small thing that niggles away at you. That, and, and that's often the biggest obstacle. So it's getting out of the door at, uh, at seven o'clock in the morning and heading out in, in, into the hills. But it's realising if you can sort of overcome that, if you can push through that, that there's the chance of really big rewards um, at the end of it. Mm. But, um, yeah, there's a whole sort of confidence thing for me. Uh, you, you see, I mean, in my profession, there's lots of people who have had um, very privileged upbringings. And I don't say that critically, all, all the best to them. But, you know, uh, financial issues, haven't, concerns haven't been an issue for them. They've gone to the best schools, private schools. Oxford, Cambridge. And I think people, the, one of the biggest things they get from that is confidence of knowing their sort of place in the world, being able to speak, 
Um, I mean, I see it now in 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 my kids who have the benefit of having an an education that I didn't get. Can I just say now, it's important to recognise as well, they get the rules bent for them an awful lot too. Yeah, well, you you know, privilege does open doors for you, Mm. absolutely. Um, But, you know, there's also um, a a problem that comes with that that I'll come back to that I've I've seen in terms of when I was applying for SILF. But the the difference I've noticed is, is the sort of mentality that my kids have, which is good, is if you ask them if they've done something, it's, well, I haven't done that yet. And it's such a massive difference. For me, growing up, um, I just I just expected to hear no for everything I did, not from my parents, but from sort of wider society. So when I sort of first dared say that I wanted to be a lawyer, I sort of didn't know what a barrister was when I was, when I was young, but I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, and it all stemmed from me sort of wanting to be Batman, got a picture of him there. So I wanted to be a superhero. I wanted to help people. You know, I wanted to make a difference. And I'd sort of watch these TV shows with my dad and I'd see Crown Court, which was quite a sort of famous British series where it would do a mock trial throughout the week. I'd sort of watch that. I'd watch Columbo uh, with my dad. And I was sort of really enthralled by this sort of search for justice and um, this investigative process. Um, but when I'd start to speak about wanting to do this, you'd just get, now you would describe them as haters, I suppose, but sometimes it was people who meant well, Oh, you know, maybe you should lower your sort of expectations. You know, you're a son of a steel worker, come from a sort of working class family, don't speak with a posh accent, you know, maybe you want to be doing something else. And it perhaps wasn't said in those words, but that's the sort of message that you're getting sent through to you. But for me, it just sort of fed me. It made, if I heard no, it was like, well, right, so I'm going to do it now. I'm definitely going to do that and I'm going to show you. Uh, and it, I just expected to hear no all the time to the point where if ever anyone said yes to me about something, I'd, I'd, I'd actually stop and say, are you sure? And I don't almost want them to get it, sort of write it down and sign it so they couldn't take it back because I just got used to this sort of rocky mentality of people doubting you or people not giving you a chance and thinking, right, I'm just going to fight my way through it. Um, and the sort of the confidence um, I, I didn't have that sort of confidence that sort of my kids have now and kids who have a, a privileged upbringing and gone to the best universities sort of get taught and never doubt within themselves. I sort of had to cobble that together from different places. So um, the gym was sort of instrumental in my life. Um, I trained at a still do train notionally <laughs> at Wicker Camp, which is one of the oldest Thai boxing gyms uh, in the country. Uh, it's run by my sort of master, my good friend, uh, Mick Mullaney and his wife, Trix March. And I sort of went there at the age of 12, sort of typical story, you know, kid getting bullied. I didn't have any big brothers, so I couldn't, couldn't call in the cavalry to come and help me. Um, so I was always on the rough end of it. And but I knew sort of growing up watching Bruce Lee things, you know, I, I need to learn to look after myself. Like, I'm sure many of the of your watchers and listeners uh, have experienced. And the sort of day that I walked into that gym just sort of changed my life because I, I was taught the obvious things, how to look after myself, boxing, footwork, all those things. How did you get to the front door of that gym, Naz? Did, you, did your parents take you or did no, you? No, no, you know, it's weird now because I'll say to my son sometimes if he's been a bit lazy, I'll sound like a typical dad and typical Yorkshireman. You don't know what it's like. I used to get up. It was raining. There were no buses and I'd be walking. 
And I did, I just did. I mean, it was it was a bit like a kung fu film. I'd heard about this gym, um, you know, in the back streets of, uh, of Sheffield. And, you know, it was Thai boxing. And I didn't really know what Thai boxing was. But I'd heard it was really, really hard. And I was like, yep, that's what I need. And I went to the gym and it was in the back streets. And there was this massive flight of stairs that led up to it. And you knew the gym was open because if the door was open, there was a picture of Sylvester Stallone as Rocky with the belt on. So you're walking up this dark set of stairs and literally every step and you can hear the noise of the bags being hit and um, rounds being called out. And it's it's ominous when you've never experienced that before. And every step is a, do I really want to go in here? Do I really want to do it? And, and that's another battle that you're sort of going through. So I sort of got to the top of this these stairs I walked in and it was a sort of typical spit and sawdust gym, you know, nothing glamorous about it, no, you know, mirrors and showers and things like you have now. I mean, this was a, a real old school gym. Uh, not many kids there. Um, and, you know, it was, it was, it was quite an intimidating environment, but my, my trainer Mick was, you know, his heart's massive, uh, very intelligent, very worldwise and um, just sort of took me in. And it was it was the best experience I could have had. I, I was sort of there from 12, the age of around 12, up to just before I went to university at 19. I was sort of there five, six days a week um, training. And like I said, initially it was hard because I was probably one of the very few kids there, if not the only kid there. When I'd spar, I'd be going in against men. And some of these men didn't take it easy on you. They didn't care that you were a kid. And, you know, it, was, it, it could get brutal at times, um, but it was all part of the learning experience for me. You know, getting into that ring and sparring, you had to sort of muster every little bit of courage you had because there was that voice in your head saying, you don't want to do this. Pretend you're tired. Pretend you're tired and you need a break or pretend you've got a stitch. Nobody will question you. And you've got all these voices going around in the back of your head, giving you sort of excuses to bow out of it. And I'm sure I took them at times. I know I will have. But over time, you sort of learn to marshal yourself. And, and it is true when they say that, you know, if you can master yourself, you can master anything. It's really about controlling your fears, your anxieties, and deciding, you know what, I'm going to do this. It's not going to be pleasant, but I'm going to learn something from this. I'm going to come out the other end. And sort of that whole process for me, and then training with some fantastic people, um, gave me that sort of confidence um you know getting into the ring when i had my first fight i would get fever-like symptoms I, I'd, I'd stop sweating i'd get really hot i remember on one fight i was sat on the table and it was like there was a morse code operator next to me because i was shaking so much the table was rattling mm -hmm. and it was like i was sending this message out uh, along the uh, telegraph lines <laughs> but that but again learning to deal with that fear i mean because when the bell rang everything was fine, you're in the fight, but dealing with that anxiety and fear beforehand where you're burning up precious energy through nerves was something I had to deal with. And my, you know, my coach helped me deal with that. People at the gym who, and there was one guy who's a, a serving police officer who in those days, it wasn't as sort of fashionable as it is now, but just got into NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. And it is the whole sort of mental approach, thinking positively, and even now, sort of people hear that and think, oh, that's bullshit. You know, how's that going to work? But I mean, it really, really does. It really does. Because your software, your programming in your mind and how you think about yourself mm -hmm. and your approach to the task that you're undertaking determine 
a large part of whether you're going to be successful. You hear from people like Lou and, and Steve who have been through special forces selection. You hear from people like Ant Middleton and Foxy on the TV doing their interviews. They say it's all mental. You know, it's not often the big muscular guys that are getting through. It's the guys who have got their head screwed on, who understand what they're doing, why they're doing it. So I sort of learned that through through the gym. Um, and it, it gave me that confidence. So when I jumped forward and I started doing the job that I do now when I was a barrister, so I'm going into court and I'm speaking on behalf of someone. You know, their, their, their next three years of their life could be at, uh, at stake here. I'm speaking to a judge. I've got opponents who are more experienced than me, have been doing the job longer than me. You've got a judge who could be um, a bit annoyed, I hasten to say. None of the judges that I personally know are like this. <laughs> but, you know, they might be upset for whatever reason. His, his, the list, the cases in his list aren't moving quickly enough. So you've got all these pressures. In a sim you know, it's a different environment. It's not a ring or it's not whatever you've been doing. But I had to sort of deal with this. And it was, I had to think, how am I going to cope with it? And it was like, well, firstly, no one's going to punch me in the face and no one's going to kick me in the ribs. So that is the worst that could have happened to me when I was training. So it's not going to happen to me now. So we're already doing well. Now we're cool. We're not going to get beaten up. Right. OK, next step. Well, let's slow it down. Let's look at what you need to do. And it's, it was drawing on those skills. Um, anyone who's done sort of combat sports or been in combat um, and, and trained as you have, you know, losing your temper in a stressful situation is the worst thing that can happen because it clouds your thinking. You can't think straight. You need in, in those situations, you need to be as calm as possible. You need to be as focused as possible. And so that's what I took from the training that I had in the ring, in the gym, working the bags, the pads, sparring and fighting. That, that was the resource that I had. I didn't have the, the, the schooling in that sense, but I had my experiences from the gym and that's what I drew upon. And I think that's what we all have to remember. We may not all have a stellar education. We may not have had all the breaks as we were growing up, but there are things in our life that have shaped us. There are things that each one of us have done that most people out there couldn't or would have faltered at the first step, and you've overcome them as an individual. So it's about finding those things that you've overcome and saying, you know what, that shows I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a pussy. I didn't just wimp out of this. I overcame addiction or working in a shit job with a shit boss who gave me crap all the time or a difficult school where it was hard to study because if you studied, everyone called you a swat and sort of beat you up afterwards or something. There are these examples in our life that we've all overcome and it's about taking them and taking strength from them um, and, and sort of I'm, I'm, I'm battling through. So, so that's what I got from the gym. But the other massive thing I got, and I, I really see it in my job now, was it kept me off the streets. You know, I, I, um, I had friends who made the wrong decision. So I say they're in the law as well, but just not in the same sense as I am. They're on the wrong side of it. Um, and that could have easily have been me if I'd made the wrong decision on a particular day and more importantly if i'd not been careful in the choice of the people that i was going to hang around with and i think now, that's something i see now now do you think that these boxing trainers they they seem like the unsung heroes of our absolutely absolutely you i mean we're blessed in sheffield we've we've also got my trainer mick Mullaney, who's fantastic but we had one of the real greats which was brendan ingle 
uh, over at the Ingle Gym, just sort of about two miles away from where I live, his greatest successes will be the thousands of people who came through that gym, who never went on to fight for a, a title, never even had a professional fight, but learned confidence from him. They were, it got to the point where the police and social services were effectively sending kids to him who'd had difficulties, substance abuse, or been excluded, uh, weren't um, paying attention at school. And he would, through the medium of boxing, teach them self-discipline. I mean, I, um, I met him once and he had a, a young kid with him and he got this kid and it was in front of lots of people, like a completely random thing to do. Got into seeing uh, the I Can See a Rainbow song, you know, red and yellow and at the top of his voice. And I was looking at this and then and so he explained afterwards, firstly, this kid used to have a stammer. So him being able to just do this without stammering was testament to the effort that he put in. Secondly, he was doing something that could have made people laugh at him, but he did it in public and he didn't care. He had that confidence, that self-belief. His trainer had asked him to do something. He was doing it. He understood why he was doing it and he was confident enough to do it. And he didn't care what people were going to think. And those, those lessons people would pay millions for if they could, to be able to get them. But here was this guy um, teaching these kids, spending time with these kids who had probably been written off as difficult, but teaching them these valuable skills for life, not just for, for the boxing ring. But he, like you said, he was using the medium of boxing. And you say your father came to Britain at 12 years old? Yeah. yeah. That must have been a culture shock for him. Yeah, I mean, the way I look at it is, um, you know, my dad's achieved more than a millionaire because often people who are millionaires have grown up here with a family or have a support network who can speak the language. My dad had, had none of that. So he came over here and um, maybe wasn't completely honest about his age when he went to certain factories, but just started working because he wanted to support his mum and dad um, and send some money back to them and just sort of started working. And... You know, my, my dad, uh, you know, before Muhammad Ali, my dad's my hero. You know, I, I take so much from him. I benefited so much from him. And I've seen the sort of graft that he put in and the hard work. Um, and to be honest, uh, sort of the gym and the lessons that my dad taught me are the two things that have got me to where I am now. And I still refer back to sort of every day. Um, you know, he came over at a time where, and he sort of saw it change society. Uh, I'm sure it's something we'll get to talk about. And he said, you know, when he came over first, it was fantastic. You know, if he couldn't find his way home, as you said, people inherently are decent. People would just help him and, and get him to where he needed to be. They'd take time out. When he was working, it was a fantastic environment. Everyone got on well. Um, but he said he saw the change when, when jobs become, became scarcer. And politicians started to play on certain fears and exploit certain fears. He saw that sort of trickle down in the in the workplace, um, and, and he, he sort of saw how that impacted on him. So yeah, it, it was sort of tough for him at times. Why, why but, did why did his parents bring him from Pakistan? To, um, he actually came here without his mum and dad. Uh, so my dad's elder brother was here, so he, he came out to join him. It was it was for a you know to, for a better life, but um, really at that time uh, Britain was crying out for help. You know it was uh, not so long after the war, 
um, you know, we'd won the war, but we now needed to build and win the peace. And the message went out to the Commonwealth, so the Caribbean, the Indian subcontinent, that, look, you know, we need you. You know, the motherland needs you. And people came and slugged their guts out and worked, just as they'd fought in the First and Second World War, uh, literally on the front lines. So, so my dad sort of took up the offer. So his joke to me is, because when you become a silk, you get your letters patent, which is like a document um, which has the seal of state on it, and it's written uh, and signed on behalf of the Queen, and it's, it's, it's quite impressive. My dad says, I, listen, I got that way before you. Her Majesty invited me over to work. So, you know, I'm the first one in the family that sort of was uh, was approached by the Queen, not not you. So that's a little sort of joke he has with me. Um, but, you know, my dad was sort of banging out 12-hour shifts in the steelworks, um, which, I mean, I, I remember sort of seeing him because it was shifts, so sometimes he'd work night and sometimes during the day. Um, but when I got to the age where I was sort of doing stupid things and I, I could have gone off the tracks, my dad sort of maybe taught me the best lesson I've ever been taught. And he said, right, come, you're coming with me today. I was like, why, what's happening? So he took me down to the factory and it was his day off, but he wanted to show me around. So we went in and the first thing you can feel is the heat coming from this place, from the furnaces. As you get closer, they open the door and this sort of wall of heat hits you. And I'm like, what's this? You go inside and everyone is black. They're just covered in soot. And we're sort of going, you can't tell who's who, what their ethnicity is. And it's loud, you know, there's steam hammers going and, you know, shouting and molten metal being poured. And we sort of went around on this little tour and he introduced me to a few people and we got back outside. And I think maybe at my, my school report wasn't as good as it should have been, or maybe I'd done something else stupid. Maybe I'd had a fight or did been disrespectful to a teacher. And he just said to me, look, um, you mess up at school. I will retire from here and I will tell them not to advertise the job. You're going to be taking over. And he didn't say anything else. And I just knew from that moment, I am not tough enough to be able to do what my dad does. There is no way I can do 12-hour shifts like him. I mean, he was a real soldier. So I got, I got that sort of taste of how hard my dad worked in order to give us opportunities, which is what he did. But also that I was nowhere tough enough to be able to do that. So the easier thing for me to, to do was concentrate on the books. Um, but again, so it's like it's realising the sacrifices that, that people have made. So, I mean, I'm probably the dumbest one in our family because um, I look at my sister's success as being more significant. One of them, she got a first class honours in chemistry. She's a she did a PhD researching cures for uh, degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. Uh, my other sister is a, a police officer, deals with really difficult cases. But that's all through the upbringing that we had. We, we were blessed to have maybe not the most money in the world, but a supportive environment, which is the most important thing. And parents who sort of pushed us to, to achieve and, and, and do what we, we could to sort of better ourselves and sort of then pass that on to, on to our kids. Um, so, yeah, that, that was a sort of important, informative lesson for me as a kid that made me realise I needed to, to work. So in the, in the British um, Pakistani community, is that a kind of ethic? Is that, is that the norm? I, I'm just thinking of them, you know. I think it's true of all immigrant, all immigrant communities. I mean, if you look across to America, where they've had lots of immigration from different countries, 
the first generation comes over and they're designed, you, you don't get onto a boat as it was in my dad's day, were, you know, you couldn't afford to fly. So, pardon me, you don't come on a boat for however many days it takes, uh, sleeping in an epoxy cabin, mm. uh, to come here and then sit back and relax and do nothing. If you've got the wherewithal and the drive to get up and, and take that journey, you're going to do something at the end of it. Um, and then very often what happens is the sort of second generation, which is people like me who have seen how hard it is for our parents, we realize, listen, we don't want to let them down. You know, they worked hard for us and they've come here to, to, to make things better for us. So we need to sort of stand on their shoulders, as, as Isaac Newton famously said, and reach further. Then it's the subsequent generation. So, you know, my kids, their kids who maybe will not see the hardships. Right. And, and they have the benefit of the success of previous generations. It becomes easier for them. And that's where sometimes what can happen is the drive drops. And, and you, you know, you'll have seen this with the Irish community when they came over to Britain. Um, again, the first, first generation, second generation, striving, working hard. But as the generations go on, things get a bit more comfortable, people get a bit softer, and then that sort of drive can disappear. Um, but I think it's it's not something perhaps peculiar just to the Asian um, community that came here, uh, although it is certainly uh, something that's big with them. I think it's just true of immigrants in general. If they've made the effort to come, they're going to be they're going to be grafting. I guess the temptation there for a parent is to go to the other extreme and be putting too much pressure on the young person. Yeah, because of what you know. Yeah, because of the very reasons you, you said. Oh, you're right. I mean, it happens. Um, I'm, I know I, I'll have done it on occasions with my kids as well, where my expectations uh, are higher. But you've got to check yourself. You've got to just remember, like for me, the golden thing is 100% effort. As long as you give and get 100% effort, that's all that matters. The result almost doesn't matter because nobody can ask any more of you. But yeah, you know, um, th those pressures do come in. I mean, from my dad, it was never really pressure it was self-imposed I knew how hard he'd worked so I really wanted to achieve something I, I wanted him to know that his boy had done good and um, I mean it was the sort of proudest day in my life when when I was called to the bar which is when you become a barrister so I took him down um, to Gray's Inn on Gray's Inn Road where I, I was called and um, so he watched the sort of ceremony and I could feel I feel that he was really proud and that's what was fantastic for me you know knowing my dad was proud of me but then fast forwarding to when i took silk so you go down to uh, the palace of westminster sort of, sort of booked a hotel to stay overnight and um you know um I've, I've got my sort of formal robes on so i wear breeches which are short trousers finish at the knee with a silver buckle tights <laughs> you wear these patent leather shoes with a silver buckle I saw, your, I saw one of your videos earlier when you when you were in Westminster. It's Westminster, right? In yeah, yeah. What is that? The House of... Yeah, so it's where the House of Commons is, the Palace of Westminster. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're, I'm dressed in my formal robes. I've got a silk gown on and I've got my full bottom wig, which is a sort of poodle wig, as sometimes my friends call it. And, you know, having my dad with me and my mum and my sister, my wife and my kids there, you know, it's fantastic. But particularly for my mum and dad, who have sacrificed so much. I mean, they'd only ever seen the, the Palace of Westminster and Big Ben at the news at 10. You know, and <laughs> Bong, Trevor McDonald sat there. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, we're sat and, you know, we hired, you had to hire cars to get there. 
And I sort of wanted to hire the A-team van because that's the kind of guy I am. I wanted to get in the A-team van and pull up outside the Palace of Westminster. Uh, and my dad was like, nah, that's not happening. <laughs> so we, got, we, got like, um, we had a couple of Rolls Royces because it was a special day. And, um, you know, but watching my mum and dad get into this car, drive through the gates of the Palace of Westminster and then go through with my wife and my kids, but my mum and dad particularly, to sit in the Great Hall and then you know, watch the ceremony take place. And then afterwards, we, we go through to the Royal Courts of Justice, which is where the Court of Appeal is on the Strand. It's the big sort of whitish building you see on the news most times when court cases are happening. To go in there and be addressed by the Lord Chief Justice. I mean, it was it was just unbelievable for them. And it was, it was good for me to, in a way, be able to, I could never pay back my dad for what he did. But to be able to say, look, dad, mom, the investment you made pay dividends, you know, I did it for you. So so that was the really important thing for me. Um, is, your, so yeah. is, your, is your father now one of these fathers that can show praise to you or does he sort of keep it inside? No, no, I mean, the, the cool thing, again, it's something that I've tried to do with my kids. Uh, we always had a really cool relationship with my dad. I mean, some of my friends I'd see would have quite a, a lukewarm relationship. It was a very... Victorian, if I can use that expression, Victorian relationship with their parents. With us, it was always good, laughing and joking all the time, you know, really fun. Um, and, and, you know, my dad was like my mate. So it was it was really good to have that back and forth. You know, he introduced me to so much stuff that I'm introducing my kid to now. Like Columbo was a big thing. The Spaghetti Western films with Clint Eastwood. I remember watching those as a kid with my dad. Um, and I sort of introduced... Uh, my son's them. So yeah, we, we had a really cool relationship uh, and, and, and I'm very fortunate to still have them now. Sorry, now, so I'm just, if you're wondering what I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to escape. <laughs> worried my computer's going to overheat, so I've just taken the side panel off. Well, that's what happens with barristers. They talk so much and generate a lot of hot air. <laughs> yeah. Um, it might... so yeah, I, I had a really cool relationship with him and I still do. And, um, and I think that's really important. I mean, the pressures on kids now are so much more, even than I had. I mean, you look back at what the world was like just 20 years ago, and it's quite eye-opening. I mean, social media, as you well know, the sort of pressures that that can place on people, uh, the expectation as well to achieve and, and, and do something is so much greater. Um, so I think it's really important to have that dialogue and let your kids feel that they can speak to you about anything. And if not, maybe me, they can speak to their mum about it or vice versa. Or if not us, to my dad. I mean, the, the joke is my, my kids get away with murder with my dad and my mum. And I, I say to them, you know, you, you, you'd have smashed me for doing this kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, but it doesn't matter. They're the grandkids. And I think grandkids get that pass. But, yeah, I think um, it's really important to have that supportive environment. Not everyone has it. And um that, that's unfortunate but then you know people will, will, will gain something from whatever their experience was um i was just very very fortunate to have a very supportive uh, it's, um, the, the, the youth of today children and, and and by that i include children bloody hell they're getting used as guinea pigs for all this social media bullshit you yeah. know they really are getting thrown out with the wolves or whatever the expression is um, I mean, to, to give an example, I've got to really be tread carefully what I say here, but it's a policy in, in the school, 
the certain schooling system, um, certain schooling systems in the UK to put it all on Twitter, right? And um, and I'm guessing they get certain kind of marks for that when they when they get assessed each year, right? Something like this, and it's well as i sit here now as a 50 odd year old man not a 50 not an odd 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 a 50 odd year old man <laughs> be careful how to say that a 50 year old man i should say um like i wouldn't want my childish self put all over the internet you know before i had the age to consent to 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 to, to all to that do you have any yeah, I mean, um, I suppose when we were growing up, the thing, as we've said, you all make mistakes. Some of them can be very embarrassing. And at least for us, the worst we've got of it is our own memory of the stupid thing that we did that perhaps sometimes makes us think, you know, I'm so daft for doing that. Well, now, like you said, it can potentially be saved there for hundreds of years. So, yeah, I think social media is a, is a whole new thing. Lots of benefits can happen to it. You know, we connect it. You can connect, almost reach out and touch someone uh, immediately about hearing about them. There's a way to sort of connect, but there's a lot of downsides to it. I mean, my own kids, uh, um, the two youngest are far too young, but my son doesn't have social media yet. Not because I don't trust him, but I just don't think there's a need for it at the moment. When he's older and he's a bit more um, with it and he can really make informed decisions, uh, about what he wants to post about, then that, that's fine. But at this stage, he doesn't need that additional stress and pressure yeah. because that's what happens. And you hear about these incidents in schools where people are being bullied and it's being filmed and then being shared on WhatsApp groups or on Facebook or whatever it is. And and, and that can be really, really damaging. Oh, I, 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 as, as a, you know, not I'm not just speaking as a youth worker and a parent, but just a human being, it must be... It's beyond awful, Naz, you know, to think that what some people can film about you and then put it all over the internet where potentially it has the, or it has the potential to be there for the rest of your life. It's almost, um, God, I, I, I can't really think of the word, you know, it's, it's almost like an Orwellian, Dickent, uh, draconian yeah. nightmare it's dystopia yeah that's the word yeah dystopia it is it, it's frightening um and you know you've just got to protect protect your yourself your your own well-being because uh, you know as we said earlier on the, the haters are going to be there and now it's not just the your mate at school who who's not happy that you're going on to achieve something who's sort of slagging you off it's some guy two-thirds of the way around the world who doesn't know you who just who just sees it and thinks yeah, I'm going to pile in. I mean, I, um, like you, whilst I was at university, I worked on the doors. Mm. And, and that's how I sort of, because I didn't have a, I had, my grant was just enough to cover uh, my rent. So I had no money to live on. So I used to teach Thai boxing and work on the doors on a Friday and Saturday night. And, and, and that's how I got money. And I mean, and that was another sort of real uh, learning ground for me. I learned so much about myself, human nature, how things happen interacting with people, diffusing situations. I mean, it, I, I learned some real valuable lessons. But the, the one thing I saw was, as happens on social media now, you sometimes see a fight happening 
And then there'll be some other guy who's got nothing to do with it, but sees one guy on the floor, so just runs along and lays the boot here and just carries on running. And that's what you see sort of happening on social media, that is just people see a pylon and just, just want to join in because just, you know, they want to be nasty uh, and there's no, no risk of any consequence for them. And I think that's the big thing with social media. People say these things that they would never dream of saying to, to your face, for example, you know, calling you a Walter Mitty to your face. I think there's very few people that would, would dare do that. But it's so easy to do it when you're uh, on, on a keyboard with uh, anonymity hit, hidden away. And, and I think that's when you see the worst side of, of people come out. I mean, there was a fantastic incident. I don't know if you know about this, but it was a, it was a boxer who I think lived in Nottingham but trained at the Ingle gym. And uh, he'd had a fight. I don't think he'd won. And some guy came on Twitter and started throwing shit towards him, saying, you know, it has been, you know, you were never any good. And I don't know what happened, but it was like a falling down moment for this boxer. And he just thought, you know what? I'm not having this. And I don't know how he did it, but he must have, it was, must have been like MI6 working on behalf of this guy. He figured out where this guy lived. So he's sending him tweets saying, listen, I'm giving you a chance now to apologize for what you've done. And this guy's doubling down saying, nah, I'm not going to do it. You know, you're crap. You're a shit boxer. So he goes, right, I'm going to come and see you. And then he started tweeting his way up the M1, taking pictures of the signboard that he was getting closer and closer to this part of Sheffield, I think it was. And as he was getting closer, it dawned on this guy that this is real now. So he starts sending tweets out like, oh, I didn't, I didn't really mean you were a crap boxer. And, and this guy's like, I'm in the car now, I'm driving. And he literally got to the corner of this guy's street and took a picture of the guy's street sign and tweeted it and said, you know, I'm here if you want to come out and talk about this. Naz, I, really I, 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 now you mention that story, I, I did... I did hear about it. I saw a similar thing in uh, in America with Deontay Wilder was called out as a basically a shit yeah. by this yeah. this crazy guy. He's all over the YouTube. Yeah, he goes around uh, asking to spar and beating people up in gyms. Yeah. yeah, and it's a bit it's a bit strange. It's yeah. And credit to it, I suppose he at least turned up. But this guy, you know, very quickly it dawned on him what was going to happen. And I remember this boxer ending up being on Newsnight, so on the flagship news program on the BBC, talking about Twitter hate and, and, and things. And I think that's what people have to realise, that whatever you do in life, there's consequences. When you actually call people out, they, they kind of quickly reassess their behaviour. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it, I, it, it makes me chuckle. <laughs> Yeah, again, you know, you just can't allow yourself to be distracted by these people. Again, you know, my sort of idol is Muhammad Ali. And I remember reading somewhere him saying how if he wanted to, he could have 100 fights a day because there was always someone saying something to him about him or about something that he liked. And he, he said, I had to decide what was important for me. And for him, he knew what battles were important for him. So the others, he just chose to ignore because it takes, you know, energy emotional energy psychological energy physical energy to deal with these things why, why give it to them he was muhammad ali i mean he's just a bloody hero to so many people um you know across the the color divide it, um but i also did hear that he was quite scripted that he kind of had managers that would write 
right what maybe i'm shattering <laughs> I've never heard that before. Never heard that before. Yeah. Um, I, I, what I'm trying to say is he was kind of, kind of quite cleverly managed when he would say things like, um, "Ain't no Vietnamese ever called me nigger." You know, apparently that that had been right. You're going to say this today, but clearly the guy was a ge- a, ge- a genius anyway. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things about him that I admire, and it's something that's not often focused on. Obviously, he was important to so many people for so many different ways. I mean, I when I worked on the doors, one of the guys I worked with was a boxer, and this was at the time uh, of the I think it was the Atlanta Olympics, and Ali famously uh, took the Olympic torch and lit uh, the flame, and this guy who was as tough as nails. I mean, you wouldn't want anyone better watching your back. Uh, was in tears just talking to me about it. Because he, he loved this man and everything this man represented. So that's the kind of impact he had. But he did make mistakes in his life and he made some really stupid ones. There was a time in his life when he was a racist against white people because of the people that were advising him, you know, the Nation of Islam, this sort of cult that exists in America. But the important thing for, for me, the lesson I take from that is that when he realized what they were teaching him was wrong and he sort of came back to orthodox islam where you know racism is a is a is a grave sin he admitted it and it's always hard for someone particularly if you're in the public eye to admit that you've done something wrong and to take responsibility for it and it's hard for us to do in our day-to-day lives often for us to say listen mere culpa my fault uh, and that's, and that's the thing that i admire about him most that he sort of spouted rubbish for a period of his time mm. uh, life but when he realized it was wrong put his hands up and accepted he, it was wrong he, and apologized he was able to hold himself with such grace and such the, the you're gonna have to give me another word again now because he you know his poise his his yeah, dignity yeah his dignity and his gentlemanness when i mean i'm talking you're mainly seeing him in chat shows but because i I mean, you know, I understand oppression because I've been an oppressed minority myself. I, uh, um, someone who suffered mental health, particularly if your mental health is linked to drugs in 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 whatever way, you 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 know, it wasn't that long ago we were scum of the universe, and to a lot of people we still are. Um, it's kind of weird, really. It's why one of the it's one of the aspects of my life I'm the most proud about is um, experiencing drug addiction because it's something you know. When people say, "Oh, you're a marine, green," but it, no, that's just something I did. I mean, don't get me wrong. Of course, I'm very, very proud and, and proud of the brotherhood. But no, come through drug addiction. That that is. That's a challenge, you know. That's something to be proud of. Um, Muhammad Ali, certainly in in the interviews I saw, you know, oh my God, he had every right to kind of be bitter and and snipe at his host or or snipe at the white, you know, the 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 white community. Um, but he didn't. He was such an ambassador, wasn't he? In, in yeah, I mean, you see, there's fantastic videos of him with kids, you know, and um, kids coming up, and he's, he's sort of taking time and sparring with them, 
there's this famous one, I don't know where it was in there, this old woman, old white woman gets into the ring and effectively fights with him and he pretends he's been knocked out. You know, he's just that warmth. And I think that's what came across in him um, that, that people loved, you know, that he had this warmth about him. He was a fantastic fighter, but that was almost secondary. But it was the thing I think I identified with him when I was a kid because it was, I think he'd retired by the time I was born or not long after. So it was my dad that introduced me to it. But it was his uh, ability to overcome adversity. I mean, the best example of it is in the Rumble in the Jungle in, in when he fought George Foreman. Everybody was telling him he was going to lose. People were saying he was going to die. You know, Foreman had destroyed Fraser, destroyed Norton. You know, he was a beast. And, and it's about that mindset as well. You know, he said, he goes, I will defeat him. You will all bow down after I've defeated him. And he had this absolute unshakable belief in his own ability mm. and watch even now when I, I watch that and I introduce my son to it you know I get butterflies I know what's going to happen but seeing him do it and then he he knocks out the big scary monster of the of the heavyweight division and it's just it, it just blows you away so it's that you know that self-belief that he had in his own skills in his own they, ability they were big back then Naz weren't they it, Am I just remembering history wrong? But those heavyweights, they were big, heavy guys. They're probably not as big as some of the heavyweights now. Nowhere near as big as someone like Tyson Fury. Who really? Was, yeah, I don't think there was like sort of Tyson Fury's 19 stone. So I think. Yeah, I mean, I know Tyson is very tall because I'm reading, I just put his memoir down. Really, really good read. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. Oh, he's a lovely man as well. I think now he's kind of finding himself a bit more. Um, and um, what he's done for mental health is just, just amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there, there, there were certainly big guys, but perhaps maybe not as big. But I, I think I don't think I'd want to take a punch off either of those heavyweights or our current ones. But hey, um, I wouldn't yeah. want to take I wouldn't want to take a punch off a of bantamweight, mate. I mean. <laughs> When you know yeah. how to punch, you know how to punch, don't you? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I have the honour of knowing uh, a few of the fighters at the Ingle Gym, um, and one of them, Barry Awad, Kid Galahad. He, he's only about eight stones, something just under nine stones. But, yeah, they can punch properly. I'll but tell yeah, you, with, with, with Ali, it was just fantastic. You know, it was this ability to to do more than be a boxer. And there was, a, again, a fantastic quote that I heard from his doctor, and because Ali had also made this, the other thing that attracted me to him was he was prepared to stand up and actually fight for what he believed in. Mm. So the Vietnam War was something that he disagreed with. Over time, the Amer American public came to agree with him, but for a time he was vilified. But he stood his ground, he fought his corner, he was willing to take whatever the consequences were. And that's what really impressed me. And his doctor... Did he go to prison now, sorry? Or? I don't think he actually ever served any time. But there was a real was prospect. Strict. Yeah, he was stripped of his titles and he couldn't he couldn't effectively box for a number of years. And they say that his best years were taken away from him. But his doctor said uh, he sometimes hears people who look at Ali as he was then, you know, riddled with Parkinson, unable to, to speak. And he said that people sometimes say that we, we feel sorry for Ali or we felt sorry for Ali. And these words are fantastic. And, and the doctor said, you know, don't feel sorry for him because he spoke and said things at a time when people weren't willing to say them. 
And that was the really powerful thing that he, he spoke up at a time when it was important. Uh, so I think, again, that was another thing that sort of fueled me wanting to do the job that I did because you saw this guy standing up for something he believed in and, and prepared to pay a price for it. So it sort of echoed with me as, as a kid growing up on superhero stories and the goodies fighting the baddies and wanting to uphold justice. So it sort of just, again, in a bizarre way, fueled my passion for ultimately wanting to do, to do the job that I do now. Tell us about your job then, Naz. Come on, what I mean, it's it, it I'm fascinated. Well, I, I'm honored to be able to do the job that I do. Um, I so I specialize in criminal defense. I, I did prosecute a long time ago, but I don't now. Um, and I sort of to the latter part of my days as a sort of normal barrister, I was doing really serious cases. As a QC, you do nothing but serious cases. So my sort of professional diet now is is murders uh can be quite serious sexual offenses terrorism cases really high profile frauds high value frauds um kidnap robbery armed robbery i mean you you name it that's what i'm doing um and it's it's people sometimes think well you know why why is it important you see in newspapers people will denigrate our justice system and say, oh, it's, it's either no good or why, why such and such got legal aid and why is this happening? Our system, as far as I'm concerned, is the best one in the world. I mean, I wouldn't want to stand trial anywhere. But if I had to stand trial anywhere, I'd like to stand trial here because the way our system works, it's not perfect, no system is, but it really does get as close as we can do, I think, to, to justice. The, the jury is at the heart of our system, so it's 12 of your peers judging you. It's not a judge who could become jaded or have his own opinions about things. Um, but what we're seeing happen now is our, our system's not being invested in. And uh, you, you hear on the news or you'll read in newspapers people saying, oh, well, oh, these criminals are getting legal aid. Well, the system's there to deal with an aspect of our society that's always going to be there, which is where people make mistakes or are, uh, are accused of making mistakes. So you have to have a system there to deal with people. Um, and it needs to be the best system that we can have, and we need to invest in it properly because where it's people's livelihoods, their liberty, uh, their financial security, their reputation at stake, it's really, really important. And um, what we see now is the newspapers often mis, uh, misquoting and, and portraying in an inaccurate way how the system works. Um, and they'll focus on, say, a murderer. Well, why, why should he have legal aid? Well, it's, it's not for him, it's for our system, for our system to work in the best way possible, to ensure that when you are accused of something, you can go through a process and then society can be confident. Well, you know what? That person went through that process and was found not guilty. Or that person went through the process and was found guilty. And we can have confidence in the integrity of the process. Because if you don't have integrity, uh, confidence in the integrity of the process, you start to become like these banana republics. Or dare I even say it, like the US. I mean, the justice system there frightens me. Where, you know, it could be corruption. So somebody could be bought off. Or it could be that the you know a system where 
justice is just speedy and not thorough. And you could have people being convicted of things they've not done. Alternatively, people who have power and finances that can buy themselves out of problems. So the integrity of our system is really, really important. You, you know, your listeners, your viewers need to know that when they make a complaint about someone, it's going to be investigated properly, that it will be treated seriously because it's important for them that when it gets to court, that it will be dealt with properly and treated seriously so that whatever the result is, you go away with it thinking, well, you know, that's our system and, and I have faith in the system. When you try to cut corners, not finance it properly, um, that's when miscarriages of justice can happen. Um, that's when people can be treated poorly. And it shouldn't be that just because you're wealthy that you can effectively buy yourself represent a good representation so you can get yourself the best lawyers. That should be available to anyone who's accused of something. Um, and sadly, what we've seen over recent years, and I'm not just blaming the Conservative government here, the, the Labour government and the coalition government were just as bad, cutting away at the criminal justice system in particular, because your average person probably thinks, well, I'm never going to be there. So, yeah, why should why should the criminal justice system have some funding? But it keeps society together. It keeps us cohesive. Like I said, it stops people taking the law into their own hands because they have faith in the police and the criminal justice system to deliver them justice. Um, and when people sometimes say to me, well, why is it important for the defence? Why should this man who's accused of a murder be represented? Well, the first thing is he's, he or she is accused. They've not been found guilty yet. There's a process. So they are entitled to have someone to speak on their behalf because they need to test the evidence. And that's part of the process to ensure the result at the end is one that we can live with because everything leading up to that was done properly. So when you see someone being represented who's accused of murder, they're not having a favour done to them. That's how our system works. And if any one of us was unfortunate enough to find ourselves in that position, we'd want the same thing. It's something I say to people when they ask me about, you know, representing and, and the system. I say, well, just imagine there's a knock at your door at two o'clock in the morning and there's a group of police officers outside. You're handcuffed. You're told you're, you're under arrest. You don't really take in what's going on. You land in a police station and you found out that maybe a woman or even worse in society now, someone's child has made an accusation against you, a sexual allegation. You know you've not done it. But, you know, the police officers are sat there and perhaps they're more inclined to believing you've done it than haven't. You go to your family and your family, I'm sure, would support you. But then slowly, you know, you'll hear the things. Well, there's no smoke without fire. Mm. And, you know, maybe he looked a bit dodgy. And then maybe some of your friends start to doubt you. But you know you haven't done it. Then you start working your way through the criminal justice system. And you get a solicitor and then you get a barrister. And I say to people, well, what would you want at that moment in time? Would you want someone who comes in and looks at you and thinks, he looks a bit noncy, this guy. So, yeah, he probably did do it. I'm going to do a half-assed job because he probably did do it. I'm not going to represent him. Or do you want someone who's going to come in and say, look, I need you to tell me what your, your side of the story is. I will do the best I can for you professionally to test this evidence and to ensure that your point of view is put across. Uh, and to ensure that 
you know, your voice is heard. And every single person I say that to says, I want the second person. I don't want the person that's prejudging me. But we often find ourselves becoming that person who prejudges something when we hear about it in the newspaper. Oh, yeah, he probably did do it. So it's really important to put yourself in that position to think, well, what would I want? You would want someone who's impartial, like a doctor who's going to treat you. Regardless of who you are, the doctor will do his or her job and fulfill their Hippocratic oath and treat you. In the same way, your lawyer, your barrister, you would want them to represent you. But in the same way as, as other professions have rules, we have rules. So it's not like in the films where, you know, in America, usually he, the guy meets with his lawyer and he's like, right, look, so I've just killed this guy. Uh, you need to help me get out of this. How do we get off this? You know, it doesn't work like that. You know, if somebody confesses a crime to you, I, I'm not obliged to go and uh, tell on them, but I can't do anything or say anything in court to suggest the opposite of what I know to be true. So if someone's confessed it to me, I can't lie to the court. So we, we have strict rules governing that's us. That's fascinating because that's, um, you probably get sick of people saying this to you, Nas, but, um, you know, what's it like defending someone when you know they're guilty is... is yeah, honestly, if I had a pound for every time I was asked that question, um, you know, I'd probably be wearing gold robes now. I mean, but it's an understandable question. And, and the thing is, you've got to differentiate between two situations. Uh, firstly, what my view is of what a person's done is irrelevant uh, in terms of how I represent them. But what I will do, I mean, if I was representing you or anyone that's listening, um, I'll sit down and I will advise them. So they could say to me, well, listen, Naz, uh, I, haven't, I haven't committed this murder. So I could turn around and, and say, well, that, that's fine, uh, Chris. Uh, you do understand we've got a thousand witnesses who saw you stick the knife in the guy. We've actually got a video of it happening as well. So it's going to be really difficult to convince a jury that you didn't mean to, to stab him and kill him. But if, if you said, well, yeah, Naz, but I didn't, I didn't mean to do it. Now, irrespective of the fact that the evidence is overwhelming, you have a right to be able to put your side of the story forward. As unrealistic as it might be, as unbelievable as it might be, if that's your case, then that's your case. I will advise you, listen, the chances of you convincing a jury are virtually non-existent, I think. But if this is the road you want to go down, Chris, let's do it and I'm with you. So that, that's where the, the weight of the evidence may well make me think that this guy's going to be convicted. But whatever I think doesn't matter, doesn't stop me doing the job that I need to do for you. And then there's the other situation, which is like the one I mentioned earlier, which is if you tell me you've done it, if you tell me you've done it, then I'm very limited in what I can do. I can't suggest to the court that you haven't done it because I know you have, because you've told me. But that, that has never happened to me in the in the, what, 18, 19 years I've been doing this job. So, yeah, your, your personal views as a professional, you have to put to one side because it's not for me to judge, just as it isn't for the judge to decide whether the person's guilty or not. It's for the jury. It's not for the police. And the police's view on whether you've done it or not doesn't matter. It's for the jury to decide because the jury system is what we put our faith in. My job is to test the evidence as best I can uh, and, and to push it as far as I can within the rules that we have to ensure that the jury has everything they need and that 
hopefully then they stand the best chance of of giving a just verdict at the end of it. So yeah, that, that, that's why it's important. But it's um, it's our, our system is is I, I I'm really proud of it. And things do go wrong, but that's why we have the court of appeal. So you know I, I've been up there a few times uh, and I've, we've had convictions overturned because things have, have gone wrong. And you know I have I have a great deal of respect for the police. My sister's a police officer. Um, I think they do a very difficult job. But just like in any job, um, I've seen where in the in the example of police where corners are cut and presumptions are made, stereotypes are followed, it results in an injustice. I mean, it happened in one of the cases uh, I represented a guy who was accused of rape and uh, he was adamant it, it didn't happen. Um, and he was saying, well, when it's supposed to have happened, I was actually on a conference call because he was a taxi driver. And he said, I was talking to these guys all night for hours because it was a, a free call and they would have heard anything that had happened. So we couldn't get this call data. Um, so we asked the police to get it. And uh, we were told that it didn't exist anymore. So we went through with the trial. Um, the guy was convicted. And we then later found out um, that this data did exist. Credit to this kid's family. They actually went down to the offices of this service provider and who'd always stonewalled us and just wouldn't cooperate with us knocked on their door and they were told, yeah, the data exists. We've got it stored in India. We can send it over, no problem. So what the police had told us was wrong. They just not bothered to check and assume that it didn't exist because they thought everything after 12 months was deleted. But they made an assumption that resulted in a catastrophic miscarriage of justice for this guy. But, you know, the conviction was overturned. He spent, but he spent 18 months in prison. Um, but the system ultimately worked. But the lesson I take from that is when you cut corners, when you prejudge something, when you think, well, this Chris has probably done this, so I'm gonna not really put my effort in. That's when mistakes happen. So regardless of however strong the evidence is, I think this again comes back from my sort of fighting instinct built in the wicker camp, in the tie boxing and the boxing rings, that you know, however hard it is, you've got to give it your all. Your job is to give it your all. So, so that's how we, we approach the job that, that we do. And, and it's really sad that people don't understand how the system works. I think it's important for them to understand it because when you understand something, you value it. When you know how it works and why it works and what it's trying to achieve, you understand the importance of it. So it shouldn't be. I mean, when you see a politician who's accused of something, he'll have a phalanx of lawyers. Yeah, more than you can shake a stick at the best ones in the country, being paid privately, probably, defending him because his honour, his reputation is important. Why isn't the honour and the reputation of the bin man or the, the factory worker, why isn't it just in, as important to them? I think it's actually more important for them because many people who are wealthy, if they get convicted of something, they can come out, they've still got resources. Now, his life, even when he was found not guilty. Yeah, sorry, um, we just the, yeah. I think the connection just went there for a split second, but I think we're we're back. We're back again. Yeah, this chap, even when he was found not guilty, when he came out and he had this official verdict that his conviction had been overturned, his life was hell. It was really difficult for him to sort of come to terms with it. 
people who didn't care about the truth, haters saying, oh yeah, you're a rapist, weren't interested in the fact that the Court of Appeal had overturned the conviction. So it was really hard for this guy, harder than it would have been for a wealthy person. So that, that's what we've got to look at. We've always got to look at the weakest in society. That's not being soft, that's being human. We've got to look at how it affects the weakest in society because that's how we're going to be judged and that's how we should judge ourselves. I mean, the best example is this whole coronavirus thing that's going on now. Uh, and America's learning this lesson. You can have private health care for rich people, but your system is only as good as the weakest link within that system. So if somebody without health care, without nourishment, without uh, good living conditions, sanitation, is more likely to get that disease, then that disease is going to spread in your society. So it's in society's interest to bring everyone up Mm. We'll make it survival of the fittest, but to say, you know what, we we as a society will have a basic level of what we're happy for people to have in terms of accommodation, sustenance, of, of justice. This is a basic standard that we're not prepared to compromise on. And I think the sad thing that happens now is that politicians, sadly, are far too willing to turn health, justice, um, and things like this into a political football and to encourage us as a society to blame the weakest people in society for the problems that are caused by other people. And, and we've got to really stop doing that. We've got to realise that, you know, by improving society as a whole, we actually make it better for ourselves. It improves it for everyone. And that there are certain standards when it comes to justice, to healthcare, that we should just not be prepared to compromise on. I mean, a good illustration is human rights. Mm. Human rights has almost become a dirty word, particularly for some newspapers. And they'll say, you know, you know human rights have gone mad, they're crazy. This, this guy, um, this murder has been given this because of human rights. Well, again, the, the clues in the name, they're human rights. They apply to everyone. For them to have meaning, we don't just give them to people that we like. We have decided as a society that, you know what? We don't want to be like those guys that chop people's heads off. We don't want to be like the people who can buy justice. We don't want to be like the people who dismiss a certain section of society because of the way they look or the way they speak. We want to have a certain standard. Um, and, and that's essentially what human rights are. They are fundamental rights that all human beings should have and that we should protect. So we shouldn't fall into this trap of the media portraying human rights as a, um, it's almost like a, a, a timeout for a bad person. The bad person's about to be dealt with and he calls a human rights timeout mm. and gets given a second chance. That's not what it is. These are rights that we all in, enjoy. And these rights were not given to us easily. These were hard fought. Uh, people love to say, oh, you know, my ancestors fought in the First and Second World War. And they won us these rights. Well, yeah, let's start protecting them then. Let's not have them whittled away by politicians uh, of all persuasions for their own agenda. Let's us actually appreciate why these things are important, why they define us as a, as a society. I mean, I do think, you know, Britain is one of the best places in the world. I will say the best and I'll narrow it down and say Sheffield is the best place to be completely because it's my city. But it is a fantastic society, but we do have problems. So we've got to develop ways of dealing with those problems without becoming angry uh, at the wrong people, without becoming um, 
vitriolic in the way that we deal with things and realizing, you know what? Society is it's like a ship and we're all on this ship together. Some might be on the first class deck, so others might be lower down, but we're all on this ship and we've all got to watch out for one another. We've got to raise the standard. And if you don't care about people, one day someone might come along and go, you know what? I'm feeling a bit thirsty. I'm going to drill a hole in the bottom of the boat to get some water. You don't deal with that situation. You're all going to be sinking. And it's a bit of a silly example, but it just shows that, you know, we are linked. Whatever happens to the worst of us will impact upon the best of us. So this is why I think, you know, the justice system, particularly human rights, are, are something that we need to be uh, defending. We need to understand. And that's the job of people like me who work in my profession to engage with members of the public um, and to help them understand why it is important. Because there is this perception, particularly of my profession, that we're aloof. I mean, because of the things we wear, I mean, one of the few other than probably drag artists who wear wigs professionally and uh, we dress up in these funny robes and um, sometimes use large words or uh, Latin phrases. And there is this sort of disconnect. But there's a, a real sort of drive now uh, in the criminal justice system to help people understand. We've got a sort of open day at Sheffield Crown Court in a couple of weeks where the doors are open, people can come in, speak to us to to understand how the system works. And again, through understanding, people will get to understand how the system works and will then start to value it. But yeah, my job, um, I'd rather be doing this than what my dad was doing. I wasn't tough enough for it, but I take a great deal of pride in it. Um, I get that kick that I used to do when I used to compete, the fighting, the underdog, you know, I, I want to achieve. Um, and so, so I get that professional buzz from it. Um, but it's, it's just important being involved in a, a, a process that keeps our society moving forward, keeps our society cohesive. So and yeah, been, fantastic job. You've been involved in some real high profile stuff from, from what I've read. Yeah, I mean, I've, um, I mean, most murders tend to be high profile, whether they're local or national. Uh, so, yeah, um, but so the terrorism work that I've been involved in representing people accused of terrorism offences uh, is obviously very high profile now. Um, and again, that's an area where people say, well, how, how can you defend a terrorist? Well, I'm not defending what he or she has done. My job is to put forward what they are saying. They are often saying that they were either not there or it was whatever their defence is. I'm doing my job to ensure that the decision that comes at the end of it, the guilty or not guilty, we can have confidence and faith in because the system had integrity. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, I've, but I've represented um, people accused of terrorism offences and, and, and people sometimes don't, will think, oh, it's, is it, it must be easy for you. I go, well, it can't be easy all the time because you're dealing with sometimes horrific things. But you have to learn to put that to one side. So I've represented people who were accused of so-called Islamic acts of extremism, uh, you know, the, the attempts to detonate um, bombs on the tube uh, on the 21st of July. Uh, I was involved in that case, one of the most high-profile cases I've ever been involved in. It was really stressful. Um, and, you know, people couldn't sometimes separate me from the case. So I thought because I was doing the case meant that I supported this and it's as far removed from the truth as possible but it's about me doing a job and you know those are the cases you want to be involved in because as a boxer you want to be involved in their 
most high profile fights as an operator, you know, you ask people like uh, Denny, Lou, Steve, yourself, well, yeah, I want to be the guy, the, I know uh, the joke, what is it, the 85th guy on the balcony of the Iranian embassy. I want to be that guy. I want to be on an operation because that's what I've trained for. So in the same way, I've trained and honed my skills to, to work in complex, high-profile, stressful cases. And as, as hard as it is to perhaps understand, I want to be in those cases. So I want to be in that case because it tests my skills. And I'm up against people who are at the top of their game. And steel, iron, was it steel, iron sharpens iron or steel sharpens steel. You know, they will make me better, you know, having to raise my game. And so that's why you want to be involved in those cases. But I mean, I've represented a guy who was um, accused of a terrorism offence. But he was accused of wanting to blow up mosques. And he was a, uh, had a, a stockpile, an unbelievable stockpile of chemicals that could make almost any bomb you wanted with the instructions to do it. And this guy wanted to blow up uh, mosques and he had me representing him. Um, and then people don't sort of get that. They always immediately think, well, that the other one must have been hard. Well, th that could have been difficult for me because it would have been easy for me to think, I, I don't want to represent this guy or, or I'm going to do a half-assed job for this guy because he wanted to attack a, a religious building that I identify with. But my, my personal views didn't matter. I had to do my job and I did it well. You know, the guy was found not guilty. It was important for me to do my job properly. To it test it almost sounds like the stuff a, a film could be made of. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean... Uh, like a real courtroom drama. Yeah, Danny DeVito, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I mean, often, uh, you know, truth is, is stranger than fiction. I mean, um, in some of the cases uh, I've been involved in, you'll have what's called a cutthroat defence. So that's where you might have three guys accused of murder. And for a period of time, they're all saying, we didn't do it. But then at a certain point in time, one, two, might turn on the other one and say it was him. So you've got the prosecution attacking you, and now you've got two of your friends attacking you as well. And they, they can be really complex because it's a completely different dynamic. You've got more than one person attacking you. Uh, but they're the most... I hesitate to use the word fun because it's not fun, but they, they are professionally challenging. They make you have to draw on all your skills. And when I say all my skills, I mean, that's everything. It's the professional skills I have, but it's the skills of the ring as well, about being able to judge people and, and weigh them up and uh, from working on the doors as well, about being able to read people and suss out whether they're, they're being straight with you, whether they're not, whether they're trying to bluff you, all these sort of things come, in, come into play. Um, now, is, mean, it, is it nice when you get, let's say, for example, one piece of evidence which completely exonerates your client and you've got to go into court the next day and present? Is, is that a nice place to be? Yeah, um, it doesn't happen very often. It has happened to me a couple of times. It doesn't happen very often. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's more the process of it. Again, you, you talked about films, you see it happen in films, it's putting in the hard work. So in, in criminal cases, you'll have the served case, which is the evidence the prosecution are relying on to say Chris Thrall is guilty. And then they've got what's called unused material, <laughs> which is everything else the coppers have, have collected that isn't of interest to them. Often really important stuff for you is in there and you'll want to go through that. But 
the system as it's currently set up, you don't get paid for doing that. So it could take days, weeks, even months to go through this stuff. But we will do it because we have professional pride. We want to do our job properly. And sometimes through that sort of sifting process, you'll find something that is a sort of a golden key for you that opens up a door to, to other things. But yeah, it's, it's probably happened once or twice where I found one piece of evidence that's that's really blown it open. What's but, been the most um, What's been the most sort of dramatic occurrence when you've been in court? Have you got a few uh, thing examples you can give us? Has anyone tried to you know punch someone else or? Uh, I've no. I mean, it's happened in other cases where someone's jumped out of the witness box and gone for the judge or gone for the for the prosecutor or someone never happened to me and maybe there's a small part of me at the back saying oh i wish it happened because i could show off some other skills but no i'm quite happy uh you know that it's not happened with me but you you'll have dramatic things where uh it can be sometimes someone giving an answer that wasn't expected or someone it's a it's a a saying isn't it that the truth will slip out and sometimes it does um i mean i was doing one case and it was actually i was representing the squaddy and I've represented quite a few squaddies because they have a tendency when they're on leave to really want to let their hair down, which means that they, they, they like to be lubricated. And then that tends to get them involved in things that they perhaps shouldn't be. And, and he was involved in a case where um, it was actually it was quite a, a serious allegation that he'd assaulted someone in a, in a, in a, in a, in a club uh, that he knew. And there was a quite a, a sad backstory to it that, a family member had been uh, um, abusing the squaddy's sister and it had sort of caused a rift in the family and two cousins bumped into one another and, and a fight had happened. And the squaddy was saying, well, look, he attacked me. And um, I just remember reading this guy's statement, the guy who was saying he'd been beaten up. And it was the uncle that had actually been found guilty of abusing the squaddy's sister in the past. And whenever he talked about the uncle, he just kept saying, my uncle, my uncle, my uncle. And in his evidence, he would say, my uncle, my uncle. And um, and then it just dawned on me that what my client had been saying fitted with this because he said, look, the family had sort of split over this. So I said to the guy that, you know, you, you, you keep saying my uncle. And he said, yes. And I said, well, but the truth is he's, he's both your uncles, isn't he? Yours and this squaddies. And he was like, yeah. And I go, well, the fact that you keep saying my uncle is because you identify with him. You you don't accept that he's committed this offence that he's been found guilty of. And it stopped this sort of guy in his tracks because subconsciously that's what he'd been doing because he had identified with my uncle. Mm. And it, he sort of found it very difficult. I mean, it's not probably the best example, but it was something that he was subconsciously doing that betrayed his view of something else. And that was a real foothold for us because there wasn't a lot of other evidence you know everything was just two guys fighting and this other guy had come off worse but this is what allowed us to be able to say to the jury that look this is the background to this and he's harbored a grudge against the squaddy and his family for making what he believes to be a, a false accusation and that's why he started the fight that night and that's you can see that from this whole my uncle thing um so you'll have little things that will happen in a case that you've got to be really tuned to I mean, I suppose it's the same when you're on operation. It's sometimes the small things that can betray something that give you uh, a little crack and that you can get a crowbar into and start working open and thinking, right, that's my way in. It's not always 
swinging off the balcony and blowing the window open. It's it's often the smaller things. Um, but yeah, th there is that sort of buzz you get when you're asking someone questions um, because you know you've got to sort of address what they're saying. You've got to destroy it. You've got to take it down, dismantle it. So do you, do you learn certain um, mechanisms for leading someone slightly down this path because you're then going to ambush them with another question, you know, make, yeah, make you, sort of, you, you sort of hit the nail on the head there. I mean, you, you know, when we're taught, we do the course after your, you do sort of three years at university, then you do one year's vocational training um, uh, at bar school. And then, so that's four, then you do one year on the job training where you're a, um, a pupil. So it's like an understudy and you have what used to be called a pupil master. So it was cool for me because it sounded like Jedi master. But he's like a, an experienced barrister who you follow around for a year and sort of teaches you the, the job. And you sort of, you are taught advocacy, the sort of basics of it, but then a lot of it is your own skill, your own sort of style. But yeah, that's what you'll do. So if you want to, um, if I want to, I don't know, get you to accept a certain thing, there's pointless me just coming out and saying it because you're going to say no. So I know what I want you to do. I want you to have to answer no for this question. So what I'll do is, I'll ask you questions about four other things that you'll say you'll agree with or you might deny, for example. And so I'm, I'm setting up a pattern. So you're saying, well, yeah, no, I wouldn't do that. And I know I wouldn't do that. I know I wouldn't do that. And you wouldn't do this. No, I wouldn't do this. And I wouldn't do this. So by the time I'm funneling you, so by the time I get to the one that's really important, you almost have to say no because you've been answering no to the ones that were coming before. So it's about understanding where you want to be. How am I going to get there? And again, you know, if you're tabbing or yomping somewhere, you don't go in a straight line because it's predictable. The enemy is going to be able to see it. So you're going to take a, a, a longer route. You might drop in a dog leg or something and, and take a difficult route because it will be harder for the enemy to predict where you're coming. So in a similar way, you're disguising where you're, where you're going. So, yeah, that's part of the job. Uh, it's part of the skill, the preparation that you've got to put in. Um, and yeah, it's, it's what you, you, you do get a buzz from it because you wouldn't be doing the job otherwise in the same way that, you know, you wouldn't be going out on training and operations when you're serving if you didn't enjoy the, the fundamental aspects of the job. Brilliant. Now, as we were going to, I mean, I, I could talk to you forever, ever about your, your role. It, it's, um, there's probably a million things I, I could ask you. I'm, I'm conscious of your time. We were going to talk about the Commonwealth, weren't we? Yeah, well, we just had Commonwealth Day happen, which was yesterday. And we saw Prince Harry was uh, in attendance. Um, and I, I know we've sort of been talking. And I just think it's, um, you know, we're rightly proud of our military in this country. Uh, and I don't think they're treated well enough by successive governments. They're often discarded when they've uh, been willing to put their life on the line mm. uh, to do the kinds of jobs that many of us wouldn't be willing to do. And um, that's true of all veterans, but something it was in the paper yesterday was acute given it was Commonwealth Day, was now you're seeing Commonwealth soldiers who still serve in our forces from Fiji, uh, you know, the West Indies, parts of Africa, who once they've served for longer than four years, when they finish serving, they're allowed to apply to remain in the UK, but they're being required to pay thousands of pounds for that process. 
And whilst that process is being uh, uh, administered, they're not allowed to work. They can't claim benefit. So these people are being punished, uh, having been willing to, to die for the country that now wants them to pay a few thousand pounds for this application process. And I, and it, I think it's a real travesty that that's happening. And, it's, and it angers me when we hear politicians rightly lauding our military for, for the skills that they have and the training that they have, which you can't argue against. But then using that uh, appreciation that we have for the military to then either justify wars that we shouldn't be sending our troops to and putting them in harm's way when we shouldn't, which I think is the most serious abrogation of duty, that if you really care for troops, you should only put them in harm's way when it's necessary. But also after that, um, uh, war that they've been engaged in or the service they've given, they, they should be looked after. And whether that's PTSD and things like this, which I know things are getting better for, but this is just an example of how Commonwealth soldiers, are, I don't think, are being treated well. And, and I think part of the problem is, is we as a society don't know enough about what Commonwealth soldiers have done for us uh, and I mean, part of the reason why Britain looks the way it does, why I'm sat here, is because of Commonwealth soldiers. You know, many people sadly don't know that there were over two million soldiers from India, as it was then, because there was no Pakistan, who fought in World War One. Uh, about half a million of them were were Muslim Indian soldiers. They held the Western Front for a significant period of time. Um, People just don't know that. These, and these were soldiers who had no intention of settling in the UK. They weren't press gang. They chose to fight. Mm. And they chose to fight at a time when their country was actually part of an empire. So these people chose to sacrifice and, and you know, travel. Sometimes they probably wouldn't have traveled outside of their sort of province, but chose to travel across an angry dark sea to countries they'd never heard of before and give the ultimate sacrifice. And to my own shame, I didn't know about this until I started to sort of look into it. Um, and you've got people like, um, from the First World War, a, a guy called Khudad Khan, who, who was the first Indian to win the VC. And he won it at Ypres. Um, and he was storming a machine gun nest, almost single-handedly. And, you know, was awarded our highest military honour. You fast forward to World War Two, and you've got, People like um, Fazal Din VC, uh, who won his in Burma. He was a section commander, uh, and they were attacking um, a Japanese garrison. I mean, this story is unbelievable, Chris. Mm -hmm. And and they're sort of attacking machine gun nests as they're working their way up to the garrison, and they're sort of running low on ammunition and grenades. And um, six um, Japanese soldiers come out armed with guns and samurai knives, samurai swords, attack uh, Fazal Din and his troops, kill two of them. And Fazal Din is run through with a samurai sword to the point where it sticks out of his back. And this is in the official citation for his VC. So the Japanese soldier pulls it out. Fazal Din disarms him, kills him with the same sword, goes on to kill another two Japanese soldiers takes the sword, waves it aloft, encourages his whole platoon to carry on the attack. So rallies the troops, gets back to platoon headquarters, files his report, and then collapses 
and dies. I mean, you know, unbelievable acts of heroism. Uh, you've got Ali Heder, who was from the Frontier Force Rifles, a sort of legendary regiment, uh, who fought in Italy in the 1945 offensive, pinned down again by machine gun fire. They're at the Senio River, I think that's how it's pronounced. And everyone's trying to get across, but only Ali and two of his um, uh, fellow soldiers managed to get across. Speed at their sort of storming machine gun nests on this open uh, hillside. Um, and they managed to clear these machine gun nests, suffering serious injuries, allowing the rest of the, the troops to come across. Um, so people who did fantastic things. Um, one of the most underappreciated is a woman called Noor Inayat Khan, and she won the George Cross, and we actually named our daughter after her. And she was, um, her mum was American, dad was an Indian Sufi uh, sort of philosopher and musician. And she was very much against the British Empire, but when World War II broke out, was obviously far more against the Nazis. So volunteered for clandestine service with SOE, the Special Operations Executive. And she was actually the first female radio operator to be dropped into occupied France. And so she's sort of conducting this sort of 007 life of moving through, working with the resistance. She was captured twice and escaped to the point where the Gestapo branded her, you know, uh, armed and dangerous. And tragically, the third time she was betrayed by someone and she was taken to Dachau concentration camp where she was executed and the reports are that the final words before execution were liberté liberty mm. and there's a, a statue now a bust in gordon square in london to her that was unveiled by princess anne what was her heritage she was an indian muslim her mum was american okay. um but this woman who you know did something unbelievable and she was posthumous posthumously awarded uh, the george cross mm. So unbelievable examples of, of, of bravery from people who looked like me. I was nowhere near as brave as them, but looked like me. Mm. And it's because of them that we won the war. It wasn't just in the film show that it was the Americans that won everything. You know, these were, there was a sizable contribution from Commonwealth soldiers in India, in Africa, the West Indies. And... And it's a reason why their descendants and some of them chose to come to this country because they fought for it and they, they bled for it. Mm. And it's why the country looks the way that it does. And then their children, like my dad, you know, came here to help build the peace. And, and the thing was is, and, and some of the older listeners will appreciate this, I didn't know any of this. And the first time I found out about it, I was watching a TV program at home as a kid and I saw my granddad's brother, my granduncle, on TV. And I was like, dad, dad, is that, you know, granddad, his name was Sher, which means lion. And I was like, is that granddad Sher? And he's like, yeah. And I'm watching it. And he's getting onto a coach, traveling out to Burma because there's some kind of reunion taking place. And he fought there. And we never knew, never spoke about it. Never. And he's, he's got this chest full of medals that we, you know, it just blew me away. Mm. he was from this generation where it was that was my job I just did it talk about it right no you know he just he just got on with his life and and I think you know how many times does some ignorant idiot or bigot say something to him like what you're doing in this country or 
you know, what have you ever done? Not knowing what this man had done and so many others have done. And I just think it's really important if we're, if we're rightly going to be proud of our military and our traditions and our heritage, we need to understand them in their entirety. And that includes knowing about the contribution of Commonwealth soldiers. And I'd like to think it would help get rid of at least some of the ignorance that causes bigotry in our society. So some of the people that would say, well, you know, you hear it from, oh, you know, there were no, there were no Asians on the beach at Dunkirk. Well, no, actually there were. Uh, and for them to understand that, you know, the things that we are rightly proud of, lots of other people contributed to them. Like we said at the start of the show, that, you know, success involves contributions from lots of people. Um, and so I, I think it's really important that we should be taught that and we, we should have our children learn this at school. And I think it's a travesty. We don't learn about empire, which shaped the map behind you. Mm. Um, and, and many of the lines, I mean, if you look at the lines on, on Africa, particularly the lines separating Pakistan and India and Afghanistan, the Durant line were drawn by Britain. And a lot of those lines have ended up causing conflicts that we're still dealing with now. So for us to understand why the world is the way it is now, we need to understand history. And I think it shouldn't be that you have to go to a, a private school like Eton where you're paying thousands, tens of thousands of pounds per term to learn this kind of thing. This should be taught at our schools. Uh, and I think it's a travesty that it isn't. Yeah, it's... Uh, you you think it, it should be taught as fundamentals. This, I mean, the education system is not really an education system, is it? It's more a... Um, can we call it an indoctrination system? Is that fair to say? I think now it's become a lot of it's people jumping through hoops and meeting uh, statistics. Um, and, uh, you know, learning should be an enjoyable process. I mean, I, I used to take my son uh, to a, a maths tutor and I used to sit there and listen and just think, I wish I had this guy when I was at school. Because mm. there's that passion and it came across and, and it's easy to communicate that to someone there. Um, but sadly now the sort of respect that teachers should have and the profession should have has been denigrated. It's almost like people go, well, I can't do anything else. So I'll just go and become a teacher because they perceive it in that way. But, you know, it's such an important job. You know, they, they're educating our children. They're educating the next generation. So we should be paying them more. We should be investing in them. We should be investing in our schools because, um, you don't just want to educate enough someone enough to be able to press the buttons on the factory floor. You want to, to broaden their mind. But sadly, you know, I don't want to get too political, but it was a Labour government that did it, that got rid of free university education. Mm. It's put off a whole section of society now wanting to go and educate themselves because they don't want to have 30 or 40 grand's worth of debt when they're coming out at the end of uh, a university course because not so long ago in certain parts of the country, you could buy a house with that. Um, and, the, and the point is, is that when someone gets a degree and goes on to do a job, they're going to be paying more taxes. So they're paying back into the system. Why penalise them again? But what oh, happens? We, we, when people come to me and they're unhappy in their lives, or they, uh, and that's quite a lot of people now, so you know, again, get, we're talking almost on a daily basis. Um, someone reaches out to me for, 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 for helping through one of my various sort of platforms and 
And I, I kind of, my bottom dollar is, is, you know, once you can understand everything you've ever been taught is a lie, you know, or it's the truth and it's got this wrapper around it that serves a certain agenda for a certain group in, in society or a group above society. That's really your, your starting place for, you know, rebuilding your own self to work towards your own future, you know, to work towards future balance in your life and happiness. And I, I, it's too much to try to encapsulate but I mean, everything is a joke. I mean, everything is a lie, and I, I, I get. I'm, I'm sure that must sound absurd to many people. What, what the, you know, what I see on my new on my news isn't the truth. And I wish. Well, I don't. I don't wish i think part of getting happiness in your own self is not is not aspiring to things that probably aren't going to happen i think it's not it's not that it's not necessarily the truth uh, when a witness is sworn in at court they, they take the, the oath and they'll say that they promise to tell the truth the whole truth nothing but the truth and the problem is you're not getting the whole truth to get the whole truth means you, you need to have different opinions different views to be able and, and listen to other people to say well okay, I'm going to decide this now. I'm going to make this decision. And it's, it's how we progress as a species, as individuals, critical thinking. And, and But what's happening now is people are, are more, almost saying, well, I ain't got time to think about this. I've got to go out and work. I've got to earn enough to be able to do this. I haven't got time to, to question this, which is a, a really sad place for, for people to be, for people and society to be. We shouldn't be... Uh, abrogating the responsibility of thinking and assessing to to who we may think are better than us. As individuals, there's a responsibility on us to be critically critically thinking human beings, to be able to look at things and decide for ourselves. I mean, a good example is sort of basic level bigotry that can happen where you'll have some people, for example, it's Muslims now, it was Irish people before, gypsies, and I'm sure it'll be another group of people in a few years' time. We'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, Muslims are like this and Muslims are like that. Maybe never even met one, never spoken to one. I mean, there's Muslims I hate, but I don't hate them because they're Muslims. I hate them because they're idiots. But And it's being able to separate, well, what is the issue with that person? And why do I have that issue? And what is it because of? Is it just because they're a bit of a dick? Or is it because of something else? We're sort of encouraged to almost adopt a sort of football team mentality approach. Well, I hate that person because he's got that shirt on i.e. he's part of that belief system or political persuasion and i'm just going to hate them all and and it's like you said about meeting people when you when you bump into people and you have an interaction i mean i i speak to my son about this um you know he goes to the mosque and we'll have chats about the things he learns and i say sal you know um more than anything you will ever say about what you believe in what will convince people and persuade people is the way you behave. Yeah. You can talk a good game. You can talk about charity, about decency and kindness. But if you're an utter arse to people, no one's going to see past that. Whereas you don't have to say a single word. If you're kind to your neighbor, you're helpful. Uh, you see something happen. You try and uh, prevent someone being hurt. Those are the kinds of things that help people understand. And that's what everyone, irrespective of language, 
religion uh, sees and identifies as decent human uh, behaviour. And, and I think that's what it is. It's about understanding the way that we behave towards one another is what makes it, uh, what, what really changes the world. Um, and I, I haven't got it to hand, and I think I forgot to send it to you, but there was this thing that popped up on my social media thing. Of, it was a poem about a smile by Spike Milligan. And he basically describes a smile as an infectious disease. But he's, he's, he's brilliant what he does. He said that, you know, one person has it. You smile at someone else, it passes on. And, and you can't help but smile when someone smiles at you if you're a decent person. And it, it can just spread around the world. I mean, it's one of the things when I was on the doors, and I'm sure you did it, we, I, I'd say hello to everyone that was coming in. I didn't want to necessarily. Sometimes I was having a rough day, but you did it because decent people just say, yeah, all right, mate. But if you said, all right, mate, how's it going? And someone just looks at you, if someone's not prepared to say hello back, that's a, 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 a warning signal. So you think, right, okay. And you'd register that person. They're like, I'm going to keep an eye on him during my walk around in the club kind of thing because, you know, he's already shown himself to be a little they, They've got an agenda. Yeah, well, just he's just not active normally. And so it gives you that skill to, 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 to read people. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it sounds really sort of hippie and huggy and, you know, yeah, just be nice to people. But honestly, it just makes the world a better place. A, a really good example is if you're driving and if, and I've been guilty of this, I've got to say, if you give someone way, if they thank you, it makes you feel so good. And you ask sort of give them a wave back. But if someone doesn't give you way, it really pisses you off. And I remember Dave Allen doing a really famous skit on this, the comedian saying that you end up taking it out on the next guy who wants to come in and you're like, I'm not giving you away because the other guy didn't say thank you to me. And so that, that bit of uh, lack of decent interaction sort of has a ripple effect. But conversely, if someone gives you away and you come in, when someone wants away, you're sort of more inclined to give it to them. And it's just a, a really silly little example of how just a small act of kindness, a small um, example of being thoughtful about other people can just have such an, a, a positive effect on other people. Mm. Um, and and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in that. I'm, I don't, I'm not saying I live by it all the time. We all talk about failing, but I really do genuinely try. Because um, I, I think the way we approach things is um, it really dictates um, whether we achieve them or what, we, what, what we're going to gain from them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, you, you might have heard me say this, but you're either you're either a person that pulls someone away from suicide or you push them towards it. There's no, yeah. there is no middle, there's no neutrality there. Either your actions, um, you know, put someone in this dark place or help to maintain someone who's in this dark place or could be the tipping point that pushes them over the edge or you're the person pulling them into the light. And like you said, that can just be through a smile. The the opposite, you know, the pushing someone in the darkness could be this this keyboard warrior stuff. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm quite a strong person, but it would be quite funny if I could grab, you know, one of these keyboard warriors, put them in front of you in court, and then have you cross-examine them saying, so you think it's appropriate to tap to attack a veteran who's fought for his country, who clearly has battled mental health conditions through his life, clearly 
suffers trauma during a wave when so many of our veterans are committing suicide. You know, when you frame it like that, you suddenly see a different, ah, right, yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought of it like that. It's consequence, Chris, isn't it? Because people can say these hateful things, ignorant things, false things without consequence. And there's this famous little meme that was going around and it was like a black and white picture of a sort of teenage kid punching another kid in the face. And it said, what used to happen when you chat shit before Facebook? And I'm not advocating physical violence, obviously, but what I'm saying is there was an immediate consequence if you said something that was wrong to someone or hurtful to someone. Should we be? Do it now in a way where they can say the most horrific things. You know, we see women being threatened with rape and all kinds of nasty things because there's no consequence. And and I think it it sort of brings out the worst in people. Well, now, now surely it's more than that. It's not just that there's no consequence. Is that there's no change of behavior then it used yeah. to be a self-regulating mechanism that you know you could get away to a certain extent saying certain things to certain you know to other people there was a line where you knew if you went across it you've got to be prepared to get a smack in the mouth yeah. or to fight and just the notion that you might have to fight kept people in check you know now you don't have that not just through the the keyboard stuff but also through the um you know the 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 nanny culture i think that's what they refer to it the kind of you know yeah i'm going to say na- nanny culture that that you know a good old fashioned smack in the mouth now will la- land you good time in prison right well, yeah, I'm always looking for clients, so um, <laughs> if you're doing it, give me a shout. But but do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I absolutely yeah. you know, it, 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 it regulates people's behaviour because they understand that I might have to answer for this one way or another, whether that's to a, a police officer, to a judge, or to the guy who's going to turn up at the end of my street saying, why have you been saying these things about me? Um, I, I, again, I think that's always existed. It's always existed. It's just now there's this ability for people to get their message out and i think generally as i said earlier when we were discussing the best ways to disengage with these people until it becomes almost unavoidable that you've got to deal with it because they're the dogs who are barking and they want the attention um, I love that expression by the way the dogs are barking but the car- caravan keeps on um i've actually written it on my 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 uh, whiteboard up here. The caravan keep, <laughs> it, it, it's something beautiful, uh, beautifully both romantic and and, and literary about yeah. that. It, it conjures Absolutely. up this image in your mind as the caravan is just rolling through and it's not stopping, and you've got these little yeah. yappy dogs. Yeah, uh, it's 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 great. It's and yeah, like you said, you know, people have now, you know, with men. Um, the suicide levels are horrifically high now, particularly amongst people who have served, who who you would initially think are, are, are so strong and confident and understand themselves and everything else. And it's just it just reminds you that no matter how strong someone seems, you don't know what they're battling with. So just and and I think that's again it's something again I try to do. Don't do it all the time. Is just put yourself in someone else's shoes for a period of time. 
you don't know what battles that person is going through. So, you know, maybe extend them a degree of latitude. T- take it easy. Don't react to maybe something they've said um, because you don't know what they're wrestling with because everyone has got their demons. And, and it's when you hear someone who's famous and wealthy um, commit suicide and you hear some idiots, oh, what did he have to be sad about? Yeah, the, you know, a million pound in the bank. Well, yeah, because whilst it might not sound it to you, but that doesn't necessarily grant you happiness. Mm. Well, a friend of mine said, yeah, but it's easier to cry in, in a Lamborghini though, isn't it? And I said, yeah, point taken. But the point is you're still crying. Um, but that that sort of, that fundamental happiness, that, that that's something that comes outside of materialism. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what you've, you've got to get hold of. And, and that's sadly what so many people who, despite achieving fantastic things in the military or in their, Sporting life, this or is, so, life. Going back to what I'm saying, this is what I was trying to encapsulate when I get across to people about everything being a lie. You know, all the fundamentals that we should be yeah. taught in school about love is the only way. You know, it's probably people are going to get sick of me hearing this, and it's nothing to do with trying to be new age or spiritual or whatever you know label. It, it's it's about doing what works and there's certain unwritten but universal laws at play in this in this whatever this thing is we're, we're all in whether it's a matrix or a, a, a or a, a um what do they call it they call it a a program don't they you know the, I, I, the name's slipping my mind um but there's certain things that that work and all the things that work to make you happy are all the things they don't teach in school. And all the things about uh, understanding the, the world and the history and going back to what you're saying about the Commonwealth. Well, how are you going to learn that when, you know, you go to a job, you're, the job isn't rewarding. Then So you come home and then you try to escape into what I would call junk TV. But, you know, I'm just saying TV. And then you want to, you know, drink your couple of beers or smoke your spliffs or, or, or whatever for a bit more escapism. Your head hits the pillow. You get up at six o'clock, half six, seven the next day. You do exactly, the, you know, the same thing again. There's no window there for personal development, which mm. comes through, le- which comes, you know, um, comes through learning and. And the fact that we have allowed our elders, which is essentially, you know, what our leaders are, to to turn the system around, to charge the younger members of the clan. I'm talking in indigenous terms here, but to charge them for education. So that is like the the uh, the Indian chief charging his children to learn how to go and say hunt a buffalo to look when when he's then going to expect them to look after him in old age i, I don't know if this is if i may no, i understand you know, you're right utterly ludicrous these young people are the ones that are going to build a healthy thriving happy balanced community and what we're doing is we're loading them with this debt to charge a system which is very question, you know, system of education, which 
I found was very questionable in itself. You know, the whole thing about university or academia is it's supposed to be for thinking people. It's supposed to be about reflection and, 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 um, and this kind of thing. And I, I found there were some very strict parameters when I was at university uh, it, it, that were not and barriers for so many reasons, you know, barriers. Um, well, anyway, these, you know, these barriers that had found that I, I don't want to get too heavy, but I kind of think I know where these, these restrictions on, on human freedom and liberty and, and, and education come from. But um, yeah, it's, and, and it's, and the irony here is to the other side of the corner, the one side we, we're giving, you know, we're losing our liberty, we're getting constrained, we're getting fed rubbish for, through, through our media to just to keep us, you know, doped up and, and uneducated and our community's been broken, broken down so we don't speak to each other anymore, so we've got no community cohesion, so we can't take action against these people that are just, uh, you know, pillaging off us for their own greed, greed. And they can't be happy, which is, again, another irony, because money can't make you happy. Power can't make you happy. Happiness, as we know, comes from within. And yet the, the irony is that then we've got a system like the British legal system, which is wonderful. And it's it's all understanding. It's benevolent and, and in its kind. And, we, and that is maintained in amongst all of this kind of... Uh, chaos it's it's fascinating i think just before we leave this topic in terms of schools i think sometimes we expect too much of them um i mean my wife and i we we sort of discussed this that you know uh, our, our kids go to a good school but really you can't expect the kids to for the, the schools to form your children that's your job as a parent so re really the really important lessons about how to be with people you need to be teaching those at home and the school should just really be reinforcing them. Sometimes my, my dad, uh, well, it was actually my mum that said it because, you know, my mum's English is basic, uh, but she's really proud. And she, she said, well, I don't care. It's, it doesn't matter if I don't speak English brilliantly because I've raised a QC, a first class honours scientist and a police officer. So it doesn't really matter. I'm doing everything right. But um, she talked about schools and she said, look, we, you know, in terms of understanding what was happening at schools, we didn't really know what was going on. So she referred it back to something she identified with. She goes, well, you know, we are originally from Kashmir. So, you know, the hills and the mountains and shepherds. She goes, it was like taking the, the, the flock out in the morning. We take you out, send you into school. We don't really know what's going on there. And then we come and pick you up and we bring you back. Um, and, th and they tried to engage with school as, m as much as they could, and they did. But really, what they were actually doing was far more important, which was giving us the structure and the outlook on life and the outlook to, on humanity at home, which was really the far more important thing. And as you said, that comes from your house, mm. comes from your family, and it comes from your wider community. And I think that's why community in its broadest possible sense is so, so important. You'll often hear older people, you know, reminiscing about the good old days and when you could go to your neighbour and you could, and and that's true it's fantastic but there's no reason why that shouldn't be happening now and you are seeing this resurgence in people understanding why it's important to know your neighbour to understand if your neighbour needs help if they're ill and to just help out 
because it helps make everything better. But I think those fundamental reason, uh, lessons, really, they come from the house, they come from us. Mm. And don't expect the schools to teach your kids that. Expect, at the very least, for the schools to reinforce those lessons. But then you've also got to look at other things that you can do, which allows me to segue nicely into the Marine Cadets mm-hmm. uh, and, and what my son's doing. Because um, I, I, I sort of knew that, look, you know, things are in some ways easier for him. I mean, he doesn't do what I did, which was I remember as a kid, maybe being six, seven, I was just out during six week holidays. You would not see me for dust for a good nine, 10 hours. Can't really tell you what I did. I'm sure some of it was stupid. And in fact, I can guarantee some of it was stupid because some of it still gives me nightmares. I mean, a friend of mine and we, we crossed both carriageways of the M1, that's six lanes of a motorway carrying bikes. And it gives me nightmares now thinking about what could have happened. And we did it twice. And I don't know why we did it. But I mean, that's the kind of stupid thing as kids you can get up to. But we were out and about and we were exploring and we sort of got that. Uh, we learned other lessons, but like obviously the world has changed now. And because parents are working, you don't let your kids out as much to just go and do stuff for, for many people. So I knew for, for, for my son, Sal, and hopefully for my girls when they're older, I wanted them to learn those kinds of lessons of self-reliance, a different kind of discipline. And, you know, that's where we found the Royal Marine Cadets. And it's the single, one of the single best decisions we've taken as a family. I mean, the first thing was when I took Sal. And he's always sort of had an interest in these kind of things. But I think anything that a dad sort of likes the, the, the kids will naturally start to rebel against because maybe we push it a bit too much. And, and at first he didn't want to go. He wasn't even interested in looking at it. And I was like, look, son, you, you're going to go. You're going to have a look. And then we, we can see. So we went down and he had sort of had a look at it. And the first time he went down, he came back and he was just hooked. And his first lessons there and uh, were ironing. So they literally got the irons out, the ironing boards and shirts out and showing them how to do this. And he was buzzing off it. He's on that iron now more than, certainly more than I am and almost as much as my wife is. But it was a fundamental skill. And, you know, bullying his parade boots and bringing them up to a shine. You know, um, all these very basic life skills. But as his detachment commander, Sergeant John Daly, who's an amazing guy, maybe should you should have a chat with him someday, but such a fantastic guy. He was a serving soldier does so much for these kids. I mean, literally pours his heart and soul into it for nothing in return, uh, has the patience of a saint. But the way he brings these kids on, and you've got kids there who've got different difficulties, ADHD or, or, or other things, and finds a way to get them to connect with what they're doing. So we'll say, for example, bullying the shoes ready for boots for parade. He goes, look, that can help you focus. You can actually read something else so kids who are fidgeting will do that while they may be reading their textbook. So he finds all these fantastic ways to engage kids. And um, I just saw my son just start to, I mean, he was always a good kid, didn't misbehave. But, you know, typical teenagers, messy, you know, um, you have to check, have you brushed your teeth? Have you washed your face kind of thing? Because for them, they just jump up and they're out. Um, and just saw, you know, that little aspect of him just becoming refined taking real pride in his uh, appearance and his presentation because the Marine cadets have the best uniform. They have their, uh, it's called, 
it's not DPM now, it's called some MTP. So the camouflage gear they have, then they have their lovets. So it's the sort of green jumper and khaki trousers, which looks really cool. And then they have their number one dress, which is like what I think the Marines sort of wear, you know, the blue tunic uh, with the red stripe and the white hat, and it looks amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and he sort of looks after it. And, you know, he's he's been out on camp, and learned so much, you know, self-reliance, getting on with other people. And at times, you know, it was difficult for him being away from home for a what, week. What you're saying now is it's, it's so interesting because had you said this to me five years ago when I wasn't a father, I'd have been, I'd have been like, oh, yeah, yeah, right. I, I wouldn't have been able to relate to what I would have just paid yeah. you lip service and been happy for you. Now, um, watching the development in my own lads, it, I, I, I always say to people, when I used to go out in the beer back back in the day and you, you, you'd rock up in a pub, sometimes we used to go out with like 30, 40, there were 40 of us in our, you know, in our party kind of culture club. And uh, some of them were parents, you know. And you'd say, all right, John, yeah, how's the family? And that was it. It was a token, you know, I'm trying yeah. to be polite. Oh, yeah, well, my boy's doing this. Day. All right, okay. It didn't mean anything because I had no way to relate to it. And I, and the, the, two, uh, the, the thing that I take away from that is why when I was going out to these, these, you know, pubs and clubs, why didn't anyone get hold of me and go, Chris, having a kid's amazing it's just amazing why didn't these to just go yeah family's all right and that was it it was it was end of right let's talk about drinking beer and and football or, or whatever the case may be um and so just hearing it, you say in their defense uh, as my wife reminds me regularly it's good sometimes to get a bit of a break from having a a baby's bum with a nappy thrust into your head and they're jumping all over you. So maybe they were just having their breaks. It would be generous towards them. But yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, the, the the lessons that they learn from somewhere like the Marine Cadets, and obviously the, they all essentially do a very similar thing, although the Marine Cadets will say they do it a little bit better than everybody else, um, is self-reliance and confidence. And, um, you know, when they go away on camp, he absolutely, he loves the soldiering part of it getting cammed up, out into the woods, right, section attacks, and he's coming back and he's always telling me all these things. Um, and, I, and I just really see it developing him as, as, as a young man. Um, it benefits his academics because it's, it's, he's got to now manage his time. So he'll say, right, Dad, I'm getting my homework done at school because when I come back, I know I've got to be out of the door and I've got two hours at cadets tonight, then I come back and I've got to get to bed. So he's realizing I've got all these things to do and I've got to find the time to do it, which I think is a really important lesson with kids. What can sometimes happen is you, as a parent, you sometimes think, oh, I don't want to get them to do too much because they'll be overwhelmed. But the truth is, when you start working, your boss doesn't care if you've had a night up with the kids and you've been looking after your mum and dad or you've done this and your car broke down. It's like, yeah, yeah, good story, mate. Do you want to get the work done? You've got to stretch yourself to be able to do those things. So in, in childhood and early teenage years, if kids can do things, it's sort of developing that elasticity in them that 
well, if I have lots of things come, I can stretch myself to be able to deal with it rather than cowering and thinking, oh, I can't cope because I've got to do two things today. And I think that's one of the important things I get from the cadets, but he, he absolutely loves it. Um, and thanks again to John, they've done some amazing things. Um, one of the things he really enjoyed, they went up to Speen Bridge, which as you know, is where the sort of spiritual home of British commandos. Um, and they're actually the only cadet unit, there'll probably be loads after this podcast, who go up there and parade every year with the veterans and serving Marines. And I think it's 40 commando or 4-5 commando. I'm not sure which one is up there most of the times. But he went up there for the first time last year and uh, sort of paraded there, was inspected by the, the CEO of the, of, the, of the serving commandos and absolutely loved it. Uh, learned everything about Acne Carry and went to the museum. And they're going up this year as well because it's the 80th um, anniversary, uh, 80th or 75th, I'm not sure, uh, of the founding of the, of the commandos. Um, and I think they're going to do Ben Nevis. And I think there used to be a run when they'd get off at the train station and they'd have to, was it a nine mile speed march to Acne Carry or something like yeah, that? Yeah, that, that rings a bell. Yeah, they're going to be doing something like that. So he absolutely loves it. Um, my heart fills with pride. I mean, I was I was proud to take my dad from when I became Silk and I got to, to dress up as the closest to Batman I'll ever be. Um, but seeing my boy, we went to Remembrance Day. Uh, we, we go now uh, all the time with him. And seeing him parade, it, just, it was just, it made my heart just swell with pride. And it was important. Um, again, we've sort of had the discussions. He knows about Fazl Din, Ali Heder, Abdul Hafiz, VCs, all of them, about Nuri Nayak Khan. We went to the Imperial War Museum and, and Lord Ashcroft has his collection where he's got the VCs that were won by these men. So he understands the sort of broader historical significance of, of military service from people in the Indian subcontinent. And when we're at Remembrance Day, and I, and I know people don't mean this in an offensive way, and but I'll often get someone who will come up to me and say, oh, it's, it's really good seeing you here. And I, and I know what they mean. They mean it's, it's good to see a, a visibly Asian, Muslim, devastatingly handsome guy, obviously, <laughs> here at Remembrance Day. Um, and I don't, I could, if I was stupid, I could take that offensively and say, well, why shouldn't I be here? Why is it fit? But that would be daft. I get what they mean, that in their own sort of perhaps slightly clumsy way, they're saying, look, I value the fact that you're here. And that's it's good to, for someone to say that. But it's good for us to be there because it's almost like a, a, a visual reminder for everyone else that there were people like us in Eeps, in Italy, at Dunkirk, in World War II, at various places, in various battles. There were people like us who, who fought, and and I know they are remembered, but perhaps we should remember them just a little bit more to help us understand why Britain looks the way that it does and why ignorance and hate that's being peddled, and it's peddled by two groups. You've got those who call themselves Muslims who push forward a hate-filled agenda, and then you have people who call themselves British and patriots but push forward a hateful agenda. And the, the irony is they actually need each other. We don't need either of them, but they need each other to survive because they need to be able to point to the other one to justify their existence. 
we don't need any of them. We, we, as you said, it sounds a bit hippie, but love and understanding and common human decency. That's what's important here, shared value, shared history. And that will minimize these, whether it's the EDL or the BMP on one side or self-proclaimed Muslim uh, extremists on the other. They don't represent us. And finding this common ground, this common shared history, hopefully helps underscore that. Because your, your average sort of EDL type supporter who's, who talks about loving the forces, how, firstly, I question whether he even knows about someone like uh, Khudad Khan VC. But even if he did, how would he deal with it? Because he, he talks about loving the military and here's someone who's won the Victoria Cross who should be held on aloft. A but he's Muslim and he's Asian. How are you going to deal with that, mate? And it exposes the, the, the fallacy that these people are really patriotic or really care about the soldiers. What they're doing is what far more sophisticated politicians do routinely, which is to hijack the military because it's valued, because we care about it, because we value the service personnel, they hijack it to, for their own personal agendas. And we need to stop that happening. Um, so that's why it's such a fantastic thing. And I'm, I'm really proud of him. He has an aspiration um, to, to serve, uh, to become a Marine, Royal Marines officer. Um, somewhat, un, you, you'll think of that so un, uh, untypical of an Asian family, Naz. But, you know, we'd like him to become a doctor and he'd like, he'd like to achieve that as well. Um, but, you know, doing some kind of service for him, for us, is, is important because of the skills that it will give him. Um, I'm so, going to be giving him some lessons on load carrying, right? You are, because that, that leads me to the next thing. What he's done off his own back, and I'm really proud of him for this. Again, from watching your videos, mate, we, we sat down and just for the listeners to know, we, we started off watching your videos and you start them in the same way with your hello friends. And we both started doing it. We just go, hello, Chris. And, and that's how we'd respond. And we'd sort of sit and we'd interactively watch your videos and we really enjoyed them. So the, particularly the first one where you're talking about the Marines and stuff, and then you sort of opened up and you've got legends like Denny and Lou and, and, and Steve on. Can I, I just want I just want to make a point here. My cousin joined the Royal Marines as a boy soldier, so sixteen years old, uh, as a recruit. So not 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 a potential not an officer as a, as one of the men. He left the Marines. They give you an honorary rank when you know whatever rank you are as an officer. They bump it to the next one when you leave. I, I believe it's and he he was something like and and if you're military don't criticize me now it's 25 years ago i said i i can't remember the terminology but he left at something like lieutenant colonel you know he really um wow. he was quite he's quite some quite some guy and he left to become a barrister <laughs> oh did he yeah so i when you said earlier you know i'm not as elite as these marines it's like it's like, you know, this puts in context that, that and, and I'm going to be honest here, I think a little bit like myself and, and, and the majority of others, when we left, we kind of saw it for what it was. It wasn't, you know, I'm always trying to be careful what I say here. Obviously, we're part of the brotherhood. Uh, it's yeah, had a less misty-eyed view of it. I, I, I mean, I've, I've yeah, seen. I'm just trying to say that we realised 
we're all only human. Yeah. And there were a few idiots in there, that's fair to say. Yeah. Probably well, we had really... a really good laugh listening to Denny when he was talking about when he was the only one who spoke up mm. to that senior officer and then what happened to him and how he was shipped off. It, I mean, it was, I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? That um, sometimes it's, it's encouraging you not to be critical in your thinking, which can be, I suppose, a negative thing. But, um, but yeah, we, we're, we're sort of really proud of him and what he wants to achieve. Um, and my, now it's just to say my friend John, who I served in uh, Northern Ireland with, he left, became a barrister. And very old friend of mine, another chap I served in, in the Northern Ireland conflict with, George, has done all the exams. Um, he's got to a sticking point because uh, of financial reasons. Apparently, it's not cheap to put yourself through this, right? Well, I mean, you know. No, yeah, it's expensive. I mean, um, you know, my, my dad sort of took a loan out and got me through. So, yeah, it is hard. But it, look, any of those guys and certainly anyone who's watching, if they're sort of um, no point asking me about being the 85th guy on the Iranian embassy, I can't help you there. But if you... If you have a, a desire to go into the law or if you reach a sticking point, just reach out to, to Chris and he can put you in touch with me. And any advice I can give you, um, even if it's sort of coming along and spending a day with me just to get a bit of work experience, I'm more than happy to do. Because the reason I'm here is because people were, offered, were willing to offer me help and give me a helping hand. Not always, but sometimes they did. And... I don't get bitter because people didn't help me. I just remind myself that they didn't help me at that point, which means I need to help someone else. Um, and, you know, you uh, it just reminds me of uh, I enrolled on this sort of mentoring scheme when I was at university that was supposed to help people from sort of uh, working class and sort of minority backgrounds uh, achieve what they wanted to do. And obviously I wanted to be a barrister and this sort of, hooked me up with a, a, a guy from a particular organisation. I won't say any more than that, but it was law-related. And uh, and I went in there and I sort of, it was a bit like speed dating, there were like 30 tables and you sort of sat down amongst everyone else and you're looking at the person. Um, and it sort of goes back to what we were talking about, negativity. And all this guy did for 10 minutes was just tell me how his friends who had gone to Oxford and Cambridge couldn't get over the final hurdle and become a barrister and how it was so difficult and really hard. And there were other things that could be done. And I just sat there listening to this guy for 10 minutes. And I'm not necessarily proud of what I did, but I did it. And I'm, I'll be honest and, and tell you what I did. I just stood up and just told him to fuck off. <laughs> and he just looked at me and he went, what? And I said, well, I've not come to listen to this. I know all this. I know it's hard. I, I was here under the impression that you were actually going to give me some advice and how to deal with this, but all you're doing is telling me how basically I should give up. I don't need to hear it from you. I'm leaving. And I walked out and I got some grief for doing it, but I realized that there's those voices are everywhere and people oh, will be experiencing I, it. I, so I'm, ignore having, it. I'm having to tread uh, not not tread carefully, it's not the right word, but I'm in I'm involved now in project work with other people. I have to remind myself that. You see, this naysayer thing about, oh, you'd never be able to... Like, I haven't had to deal with that for 20 years now because I've just believed in myself for 20. You know, if you read my books about... Yeah, quick book plug for anyone who doesn't know me. First memoir, second one. You know, one of the themes that runs through 
oh, both of those both of those books is um yeah just believe that i never lost belief in myself mm. I, al- almost because i knew it's so important not to i mean that's just one reason alone is but um yeah i'm having to remind myself that other people that i'm dealing with are getting this and they're obviously um some of them it's their first kind of adventures they've been involved in you, you know um and so they're having to deal with this like for the first time when you set out to do an extreme adventure which most of the things i do are relatively extreme you're going to get all this and for the reasons you say some of it is well wishers that don't want you to get hurt some of it is the crab in the pot that sees you trying okay. to leave and wants to pull you back and all this and i forget that I don't have to deal with that because it, it's like water off the duck's back to me. I don't really focus on it. I know when I ran the length of the UK, um, uh, I had two highly respected people tell me I was absolutely crazy. I mean, it was they were concerned a lot because I'd had um, spinal surgery, which is a fair, a fair one. Um, and they obviously didn't know the extent to which this this affects me and still does affect me but then um when i did my quadruple iron man for my 50th birthday uh i had an iron man tell me like chris do you really know what you're doing do you, do you have any idea how hard one iron man is it's like most people will train their whole life to do one iron man and even then a, a good percentage uh, uh, you know significant percentage will will fail you're going to do four with uh, eight weeks training. <laughs> sounds crazy. Sounds crazy saying it, but but here's the thing. I I get I get. There was a time in my life I I, I would have listened, probably listened to that and and reflected on it and mould it over and thought, oh my, but. You know, my, my 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 training, my own personal, what I've done for myself over the years has just got myself to a place where I know I'm going to hear that. I, I I just know it. And it's not it's not really, a, you know, it's not sort of an issue. And of course, there's so many other devices you then bring into play to get you to, you know, for example, I'll say worst case scenario. You know, uh, next year, um, very, very. Uh, uh, nice man and myself, Brad, are going to cycle. Uh, we're going to do the toughest mountain bike route in the world across America. And we've said to each other, you know, what's our what's our worst case scenario, here, Brad? Is we're out in a nature. We've got to put our bike on our shoulder and carry it for thirty miles to go and hitchhike. You know to go and get hitchhiked to help. That's, you, you know, realistically, I mean, people have done this route before, so it's not, it's not an impossibility. And we're like, yeah, well, if that's our worst case scenario, it's, it's, I'm talking aside from falling off our bikes here and dying or getting run over or something, right? Um, which is, you know, that that's, you can't predict those things anyway, right? But the stuff that we can control is, you know, Worst case scenario, pick the bike up, we walk and we hitchhike to the nearest hotel and then we get a flight home. I mean, it's not, that's not really a bad scenario if you ask me. It's going to be disappointing. 
Yeah. It's not a bad thing. It's not a reason not to go and do this thing, you know? And, and best case scenario is we go and we absolutely have a wonderful time. We pedal our bikes just going like this because that's how you pedal a bike. We take one day at a time. We, have, we find a beautiful spot to camp. We have a bit of banter, you know, a beer or, or probably in my case, it'll be a Coca-Cola. And, um, you know, we, I know saying in the book that I'm writing, you know, that one of the chapters in my book is going to be called um, uh, You Might Actually Win. <laughs> You know, you know, you know, because everyone wants to give you the worst case scenario. I've turned that around. And said, what, you know, what's the worst thing about London, entering the London Marathon? Well, you, Naz, you might win. <laughs> you might win it. Yeah. You know, that's if they let me roll all the way there. <laughs> so, but, um, so load carrying. Just to explain to to our, um, our wonderful friends at home, load carrying is the art of carrying weight over a significant distance. Obviously yeah. you do it in a rucksack, although in, in some countries it, it, it will, the loads carried on, on their, on, on their heads. It's, but it's all the same principle and there's a certain way of doing it. That's, that makes it easier. I mean, it's never easy. It's a heavy weight. It's a long distance. Um, but there's, there's certain ways of doing it that makes it easier there's certain ways of adjusting your equipment that makes it easier. There's certain ways of packing your backpack, which can, which can make it easier. Then there's the mental side of it. And then there's the actual physical, you know, how do I take steps if I, if I don't want to burn out and, and hurt myself or, or fail. And Naz's son, is it Sal? Sal. So he's Sal. Uh, Dean Sal. Yeah. Um, what he decided was he's obviously been in the Marine cadets now for a while. And, um, they're a charity. They're part of the sea cadet charity. Um, they probably don't get as much equipment and help as the army cadets do. So there's always a need for more equipment to allow cadets to really benefit from the full experience. And as I've said, John does a, a, a huge amount for them. So he and I were chatting about what could be done, and he obviously he's watched the sort of videos about selection and um, heard people talk about it, heard people talk about it on, on, on YouTube videos and things. And um, he said, well, look, what if, what if I did the fan dance? And I was like, right, okay. And he goes, um, you know, I could, I could raise money uh, for, for the detachment. So I reached out to a company called the Special, Force, uh, Special Forces Experience who have been fantastic. Uh, I did it on Sal's behalf. And initially they were like, no, he's too young. You know, everyone's going to be over 18. And when I sort of explained to them, well, look, he, he wants to raise money for his detachment. And by then, Sal had also decided he wanted to split the money that he raised and give half of it to the SBSA, the Special Boat Service Association, uh, who are a fantastic charity who support... Uh, members of the and former members of the special boat service who are called upon much like the SAS to perform some of the most hazardous missions can suffer catastrophic injuries and the help that these people need after service is, is significant sometimes. So they do a fantastic amount of work. So we reached out to them and uh, they were, they're obviously very discreet in what they do, but they were fantastic and agreed 
uh, that you know Sal could sort of raise funds on their behalf. And when the SF Experience found out that Sal was doing it for his detachment and for them, they said, "Listen, no problem. Uh, he can do it." But they said, "There's a condition. He's got to have an adult with him." So I somewhat stupidly went, "Oh, I'll go on and I'll do it with him." And so I had sort of ideas of this will be a fantastic. I think it will be a fantastic thing for a father and son to do together. He's certainly going to be far ahead of me. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be way back. But then to sort of add some extra spice to it, I think about a two two weeks after we'd sort of sorted this out and we decided we were doing this, and I'd said yes, I went and had a heart attack, which came completely out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it wasn't the worst one that could have happened. Um, so I, I sort of recovered relatively quickly. And... Um, yeah, so it just made me think about things in a far more uh, serious way, I think. But it was like there was no doubt that I was still going to do this with my boy. I was going to be there with him, even if I had to crawl up there. So um, we're, we're doing this now on the 27th of June uh, of this year. We'll be doing it with the SF Experience, who are really fantastic. They're gonna, Sal's going to be joined by some other Marine cadets from his detachment. Uh, we've got a few friends of ours. Uh, who are climbers and divers and things who are sort of, when they've heard what Sal is doing and that I'm going to be trying to do, have said that, look, we want to join in as well. So we're hopefully not, going to have... Not, to... Not, not, not trying to do. Will do, will do. You're Thank right. You. You're right. Thank Positivity. you. Um, although the family joke is that I'm going to end up on one of these TV programmes where they have to send the helicopter in to Kazi back them out. <laughs> um, so we're going to have, a, I think, a good sort of, maybe up to 20 people just of us going and doing it, but you know, Sal sort of leading the charge. So um, we set up a, a Just Giving page, which um, I know you'll put the link on, uh, yeah. uh, on on the video. Yeah, there it is. Um, and it, you know what? We've just been blown away by the support. We, I mean, we've not really approached any big organizations yet. That's what we're going to be doing, hopefully, uh, in the next few weeks. But within the first week of the Just Giving page going live, we raised over a thousand pounds, and the target is five thousand, so that we can give two and a half to uh, to each organisation, and that really looks attainable now, achievable, uh, and we might even be able to surpass it. So that is really fantastic. But what's brilliant? I mean, we've only sort of publicised it in so far as Facebook and Twitter, and a few people retweeted us, but the generosity of complete strangers who have just sort of read about what Sal's wanting to do. And he's put on a sort of biography about what he would wants to do, why he's doing it, what he'd like to achieve in the future in terms of his service and his aspirations insofar as the SF community are concerned. And, and, and people are just, I said SF and Siri's gone off. I'm not talking to Siri. Um, and uh, they've just donated massively. I mean, a hundred pounds. Um, there's a particular barracks that has donated £500, which has just blown us away. Mm-hmm. Ones who have even been registered on these guys' radar that they know what we're doing. But such a fantastic uh, donation from serving uh, personnel. And we've got ex-bootnecks coming on saying, you know, really proud of what you're doing, Sal. This is, And a lot of them are anonymous because as is their way, as is your way, you know, they're just discreet and they just want to do the job and they're just donated the money and said, look, we're thinking of you. So it's fantastic that people have opened their hearts in this way. And before we've even really kick-started the, 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 the real drive to raise funds, 
So um, part of the reason of me wanting to speak to you was because I knew you were going to help publicize this for us, but also to give Sal and me some advice on, on load carrying and things. Um, and we're grateful we've had little bits of advice from senior officers who are currently serving in the Marines, uh, giving us what seemed like obvious, but no, nonetheless really important advice, like keep focused. The way down tends to be a bit more dangerous than the way up. Uh, one foot after the other, but we're just really grateful. Uh, and people don't have to donate if they can't, we understand. But even just putting a, a message on there to Sal saying, listen, kid, go for it, you can do it, means the world to him and means the world to, to us and, and the organisations that we're raising money for, who we should be really, really proud of. The, I mean, the Marine cadets and all the cadet forces do so much to help give kids an opportunity to broaden their horizons. And it's not about getting kids to go and serve. You know, some will, many don't. But it's giving them those life experiences, getting out into the field for a week, well, it, two weeks. You know, serving isn't the problem. Serving for people like me, it, it, you know, it made me, Naz, you know. It's, the issue is these freaking psychopaths that, uh, that control our system and work for the big you know, even more psychopathic get bank, bank, banking families are using our military for the wrong ends and sending them into these um, illegal conflicts and then not being there for them when they come back with their legs missing or, you know, or suffering, suffering the tra trauma. So it's admirable, you know, full respect to anyone in, in the military or in, in, in the cadets. It's, um, it, it's a great, life-shaping uh exp experience but yeah i mean they've really benefited from it I, I can see the kids getting just confidence uh basic admin skills you know like we've got sal ironing hopefully he'll graduate and do my shirts for me uh, god bless him he does the boots after every uh trip out into the peak district so yeah um we're, we're sort of treating it as a as a as an obvious a way to raise money for two great organizations a chance for father and son to get out into the hills and some of our friends, Ian, who, who, who's our sort of guide out in the Peak District and, and takes us out on sort of um, increasingly more difficult walks every week. Um, it's just a fantastic thing for us to do. Yeah. So um, everyone who's watching, even if it's a, a sort of a comment on the Just Giving page of support, we really appreciate it. If you can stretch to a de donation, no matter how much, we genuinely appreciate it. Every single penny will go to the uh, RMC, the Royal Marine Cadets, or the SBSA. And, and they are both organisations that deserve our, our, our support. So, yeah, we're, we're really looking forward to that. Um, Sal's got a little sort of um, diary on the Just Giving page where he posts pictures of, of what we're doing and sort of milestones that we're reaching. And, um, yeah, any particularly serving personnel, um, uh, particularly those from the SF community, you can even just send out a, a thumbs up to, to Sal. It will really help motivate him. Um, is it just is it well. just through the um, Just Giving page or do you have a, a social media page as well? No, we've only got the Just Giving page at the moment. I mean, we can think about setting uh, something else up. Uh, I've not really got around to it. I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm no, I was, I was now where social media is. Any, any, any links you send me now, so I'll put them below. Below yeah. anyway. Um, I think we might set up a Facebook page as well. But um, um, the, the just giving and the Twitter seems to be working well. 
And um, like I said, I'm sort of overseeing it all myself because, yeah. um, you know, it, it can be toxic um, in terms of uh, social media and things. And I, I uh, want to cross out from that. Of course. Um, so, so, yeah. um, oof. It's where I, I put myself in hospital again with my back. I mean, um, sitting in the chair, it's not, it's, it's not that it's, uh, I think I picked the wrong career, but Naz, um, we called the board that, uh, well, first of all, good luck to your son. It's Cheers. an amazing thing he's doing. Um, after I've said official goodbyes here to, to our friends at home, um, stay on the line. I've, I've got a couple of ideas, but um, maybe we can talk about. Um, I'm just going to dip to the side, Chris. I've got someone at my window who's trying to catch my attention. I'm just going to tell I'll Two minutes. I'll see you later. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm, in, I'm in between murder cases now. So I've just finished one and I'm starting one again in a few weeks' time. And um, again, one of the jobs, if you're in living in your community, you've got to be there ready to help people. So uh, the, one of the problems I have is people turning up at my office window and giving me a knock. So I, I'm just telling them that I'll catch up with them later. Uh, yeah, um, sorry for the interruption. Yeah, no, it's um, I had visions of him wanting a team for hash. <laughs> 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 just sell it out the window. No, um, joking aside, yeah, massive good 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 luck good luck to your son. Um, we called the bought the t-shirt podcast, and I can see you're wearing a fine t-shirt today build one yeah sheffield uh for, the, the longitude the latitudes there what's the can you give us um you know, what's the best thing about sheffield other than the people obviously um i mean it's got a proud history you know we're known as the steel city uh and uh, i'd like to say that you know all the residents here have that same steel in them you know what? It's a good place. I mean, obviously, every area has its problems, and I wouldn't be working if there weren't problems here, given my line of work. But generally, everyone gets on well. Um, we've got a real good mix of people, and we're one of our biggest things is how close we are to the Peak District. It's something I shamefully never really took advantage of enough until I started training for this thing with, with my son, Sal, and, and Ian, because we can drive in sort of 15, 20 minutes we're out into, into the peaks. And Ian, who's a, a really good climber, tells me how you've got people coming from America, China, because some of the best climbing is here in Sheffield. Wow. Uh, and, and, you know, we don't really appreciate it. and We've got it here on our doorstep. Um, so, yeah, come. The food's really good here as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so if anyone's uh, swinging by, please give us a shout. But, yeah, it's a fantastic, fantastic city. Um, and, you know, we've got our proud tradition. And, you know, we have the... The Derwent Dam, Lady Bow, which is where the bouncing bomb was tested um, for the famous Dam Busters raid. Incredible. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, lot, lots of uh, interesting things happening up here. Final three questions for you. I, I try to remember to ask these to, to everybody. Do you have, this can be, you can exchange these words mutually. It can be inspirational. It can be favourite. It can just be something you enjoyed. But I say book, film, and person. So, is there an inspirational favorite book or something uh, you could recommend? Yeah, book. There's lots. I'm just looking over at my bookshelf now. I mean, there's every single book on there 
has come effectively through recommendation of someone else who said, look, you need to read this and, it, and you know, it'll be really helpful. And, and I'm trying to think which one I can narrow it down to. Um, I mean, if you're interested in the military and stuff, there's a fantastic one. You, you might actually be able to get it free as a PDF. It's called Afghanistan, The Bear Trap. And it's written by the former head of the Afghan Bureau, the Pakistani Intelligence Agency, the ISI. And he talks about effectively the war against the Russians. And it's, it's, uh, it has a real good military aspect to it in terms of tactics and diagrams, but also gives you a background of how the Americans were bringing arms in and how they were supplying the, the Mujahideen at the time to fight the Russians, the role special forces played. I mean, and it's a tactic, it's a fantastic book. I mean, this guy, obviously a military senior rank, so really knows how to explain it, but shows you how one of the most powerful military powers in history was brought to its knees by you know a bunch of guys running around in flip-flops, but supported. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it obviously allows you to sort of contrast it with what's happening in that country now. And uh, sadly, it's a country that's been riddled with warfare for centuries. So that, that's a good one for the military. Um, what other one can I think of? Um, uh, there's one uh, I've literally just been sent now, um, written by someone who's worked with um, high achieving athletes. I think it's got in the zone. I've literally just got it delivered this morning. Um, and it's about what people can do to ensure that they're sort of able to maintain that peace and tranquility um, in the most stressful of situations. And the reason I know this works fantastically, the book was recommended to me by a good friend of mine, a guy called Martin Suju, who's um, who was a lawyer, but is now like a top performance coach. But um, he does a podcast called uh, In the Zone and, um, sorry, Outperform, Outperform. And a friend of mine called James Ogden, who's a high ranking sort of uh, Thai boxing fighter, fought just this weekend and listened to the podcast and reached out to the guy that wrote the book, whose name escapes me for the second, but said, look, Naz, it made all the difference for me in this fight. It just made it easy for me. Um, so I'll, I'll 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 text you through the name because I haven't got it to hand and I don't want to disappear off camera. Yeah. So, so, so let, let's let's go on to a film now. This is um... film uh, again. I love films. There's so many, um, you know, and and I appreciate them all for lots of different things. In terms of probably the one because I'm starting to watch these films, which are called old films now, but are probably we still consider as uh, new films because we don't think ourselves as old. The Usual Suspects, and I watched that with my son, and it just blew him away, the whole twist in the in the tale. So The Usual Suspects, but also Where Eagles Dare, the one with uh, Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood, another fantastic, you know, uh, war yarn that uh, we've, we've both enjoyed. Uh, the Thing, the old thing with, you know, Kurt Russell, uh, the John Carpenter film, fantastic film that we, we really love. And uh, person, uh, it's uh, apart from my dad, it's Ali Muhammad Ali. Brilliant. Um, but um, just a sort of quote, the one that I sort of keep to my heart now uh, closely is one that I read by uh, a philosopher, Muslim philosopher called Rumi, who wrote lots of poetry, and uh, and it really sums things up about how I sort of started looking at things and now look at things. And he he said famously that. Uh, Yesterday, I thought I was clever and I wanted to change the world. Today, I am wise and I change myself. 
And I think that really sums things up that if you if you want to change things, you know, start on yourself, make yourself better, improve yourself. And the way you start to interact with people and you'll see that change sort of start to ripple out into the world. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the, that, the quote that I'd like I to think leave. that's a brilliant point to finish on. Thank you so much, Naz. Like I say, just stay on the line for a bit. I've just got to basically click the, the record button off. But thank you for your time, your wisdom, your commitment. Uh, massive congrats on your career. Um, and I think um, good luck to your son again. And let's let's speak again because, um, I mean, we've done about three and a half hours and uh, I think there's a lot. There's probably a lot more, a lot more to talk about as well. Yeah, well, uh, as long as your YouTube channel stays alive after I've appeared on it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> definitely do it again. I, I'm sure. It's, I just want to say thank you for what you do. Um, you know, um, we connected by watching you, and and I think the 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 honesty, the warmth, the candor with which you approach everything you talk about, and the sincerity, it really comes out. And I think that's why you've got so many fantastic people, other than me, <laughs> coming onto your show and connecting with you. Um, you know, anyone who's slagging you off, you don't get the regimental sergeant major of the SAS coming on and speaking to someone who's a wobble. It just yeah. and, oh. and your warmth uh, and, and, and the way that you explain things is fantastic. It's really refreshing. It's needed. I'm sure you'll end up on Joe Rogan's podcast at some point. And if not, he'd probably end up on yours. <laughs> if I'll have him. <laughs> yeah, if you've got the time. If you've got the time. Now, thank you ever so much. And to everybody watching or listening, big love to you all. Speak soon. Cheers, mate. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.